Dog Notebook Podcast. A podcast featuring the stories, trips afield, and legacies that are left following great gun dogs and classy bird dogs. I'd like to thank my sponsor, the Pride Dog Food, for their excellence in performance dog nutrition and Orvis for allowing me the written platform for my outdoor writing. I'd also like to thank the other friends and contributors that make this gun dog community such a great thing. Thanks for listening. This is the next episode of the Gun Dog Notebook, hosted by Darrell Smith. of the Gundar Notebook Podcast. Um, on the line, I have Mr. Daryl James and Mr. Joe Anderson, uh, two very, very, very exper- experienced hunters that I have just had the pleasure and the honor of having onto the podcast. So, you know, if y'all don't mind, since we got these gentlemen on, I uh, want to welcome Daryl James and Joe Anderson to the podcast here to tell y'all about stories and Mr. James let me just ask you how is it that you started out this hunting thing well uh, when when I was a young when I was a kid actually uh, my mom and dad were I guess what you term sportsmen mm-hmm. they, they both hunted um, they both fished my, my mother um was a very active um, woman, and I, I think she was probably kind of rare at the time, especially for an African American woman. She squirrel hunted and rabbit hunted with my dad, and they both shot trap and skeet together. Nice. And um, so um, they they kind of had my brother and I a little later, so they got a lot of time in just the two of them doing that kind of thing. So by the time we came along. It, you know, we they had a boat, so we fished on a regular basis, and we camped, and they were the kind of people that, if they, you know, my mother was a elementary school teacher, and my father was a tier three automotive uh, factory worker. Wow. He, I believe he was a shop foreman, and uh, they had limited amount of time, so if they made plans to go on a fishing or camping trip, and the weather got bad, that meant nothing to them. They had no recourse they had to take the time so right. i grew up going out no matter what the weather was wow and just learning that you have to find out what the right equipment is keep it in good condition and don't let mother nature stop you because that's that's not part of the deal if they were going to go fishing they went fishing right <laughs> you know as long as it wasn't thunderstorms and, and tornado weather but the, you know, I, I have vivid memories of going fishing in the pouring rain because that was the time they had a lot of them to go fishing right and um, I, I I have very vivid memories of them shooting trap and ski and I, it was really kind of odd just recently I just have this vague memory from childhood of sitting in this clubhouse watching them out on the skeet range uh-huh. and I just recently found out just by having one conversation and another conversation and being a naturally curious individual uh-huh. that skeet and trap range that they shot at was one of the original Winchester uh, sponsored franchise 
Captain Ski Clubs in Michigan. It was I think it was the only one in Southeast Michigan, which is where Detroit is located. That's wild. I mean, that's. <laughs> and, and look, Joe, I don't want to I don't want to leave you hanging either. But I mean, when you told me that, um, I mean, that just opens it up for a whole nother narrative, because so often do we find out, you know, that we might even be six degrees separated, you know, from the hunting and shooting industry. I know I was, I you know, prime example where my grandfather, you know, grew up and they grew up hunting and stuff like that. Um, and they did it as a as, as they were kids down in Columbus. Um, and he taught me how to shoot and things like that. And next thing you know, I'm growing up and this is a major part of my life. It sounds a lot like that, that you have that same narrative. <laughs> it, it is similar. And my father grew up doing it because that's how you put protein on the table. Right. He couldn't afford to go to the grocery store and buy meat. Right. You know, so it was usually beans and cornbread and collard greens or something for dinner. And if you wanted some meat, well, you had to go out and get that meat. Right. It, it, it so wasn't a whole lot of negotiating. Were, yeah, most of the adult males that I grew up around were some type of an outdoorsman to furnish that protein, and they just passed it down to the, the people, the young people that were around them. Right. Right. And, you know, that's one thing that I've been trying to um, really articulate in my work. You know, it's not a whole lot of us black folks that are heard of right now my keyword is heard of not seen because we're out there and 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 a lot of us have a history of doing this you know in our adolescence or or and especially you know going back way 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 back at a different time you know joe you and i were talking about it you know kids nowadays aren't seeing that you know they're they're in in with this new generation my generation of millennials we're going to be the ones to carry on what what you guys have set forth, you know? I would agree. And, uh, you know, it's the, the outdoor life that we grew up with, you know, where you were out at, in the morning and came back at sunset, that just does not exist. Exactly. You know, whether it was play, playing games and now take that into sports, you know, and, and a lot of the young people today living in urban areas, like in Topeka, Kansas, where I grew up, I mm-hmm. mean, you could drive 15 minutes and you were way out of the country. Right. Well, you can't do that in many of the urban areas like where I'm located here in Detroit. Right. Right. So, and, and Joe, what what about your background? Because you, you grew up in Topeka, Kansas. Talk about that a little bit. So I grew up in Topeka, Kansas. My, my dad was a hunter. And as uh, Daryl said, you know, that was one of the ways he put protein on the table. Uh, he grew chickens and he would go out to the farmers and buy a a piece of beef and so forth, not in the grocery store, but from the actual farmers, right, etc. And as he got to know those farmers, they would let him hunt their fields. Yep. And so uh, we would go out in the woods, and my favorite memories are my dad hitting the bottom stairs of the house, and I'd be up and moving, and uh, we'd go out, and it's still dark, and get in the woods and wait for the sun to come up and the squirrels to start moving. Right. And I started out with my BB gun, and I'd shoot the BB gun and run the squirrels around the tree. And then eventually, you know, got my 410 and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And we'd go in the woods, and I'd go one way, and he'd go another. And I'd hear him shoot, you know, and, and I'd see a squirrel, and I'd shoot. And you don't move. You'd let the squirrel fall. Right. And then there'd be another one moving, and, and then you'd go, go pick them up when you're ready. But you're real careful about picking them up. 
Because if he's not dead, you don't want that squirrel biting your finger. No? Right. <laughs> you that real early. Right. <laughs> that frog progressed into cottontails. And, I mean, there were so many rabbits in Kansas. I mean, my dad and I would go out, and we'd have to go back to the car and empty our coats. We couldn't carry all the cottontails. Wow. And, uh, and then we'd get home, and he'd hook them in the hind legs and pull that skin off. My mother knew how to cook them, and that's what we did. Uh, and, uh. And, then, and then I got into wing shooting the same way. And that, uh, we had just big, big cubbies of quail. And so these farmers would let him up those fields for the rabbits and then the quail, and uh, we had a great time. Wow. Wow. See... First of all, I'm I'm here for you when you talk about chasing squirrels around a tree with a BB gun. <laughs> that a lot of that that is how I got into shooting, and I got a 410 um, that my granddad, his stepfather, owned it, and now I have it. And that gun is about to be a hundred years old in, uh, next year, matter of fact. So you know, I'm I'm here for it, and um, it's it's special moments like that that kind of take me back to childhood and I wish that more of us had that nowadays because it's just something that, that needs to be sustainable so you know I, I asked you guys how are you sustaining it now and I kind of want to get into it um, you know as we go along with this episode but you know for starters what type of dogs did if you guys grew up with dogs hunting over them did you, um, what type and you know were they good? Were they, you know, what people call meat dogs? Talk about them a little bit. Well, my dad uh, raised English pointers, and we always had two English pointers. Okay. One was a liver and white, and the other one's brown. Okay. Uh, and, and the liver and white was called Prince, and the brown was called Fido. <laughs> and when one or the other died, the next one, the next liver and white was also named Prince. And the next brown was any final. So we never had any confusion right. about the dog's name. <laughs> every, time, every time he passed on and got the next one, it was Prince and Fido. Right. And we train those, those dogs ourselves, you know, with a fishing pole and a quail wrapped around, a quail ring wrapped around a car and cat cob. Mm-hmm. And you put that out in front of that dog and teach him to, to hold and point and so forth. And went out in the field with them and they, they point those quail and we bring them down. See, that's what I'm talking about. But not, not Prince and Fido, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah. My, my father had uh, Springer Spaniels. Okay. And uh, he had them before, before I was born and they were they were named Freebie. Freebie number one and Freebie number two. <laughs> they, they, they were named Freebie because they were free. That is silly. My parents decided, somehow decided, you don't pay for a dog. If you don't get a dog for free, you don't get it. <laughs> so he, he had freebie number one, and freebie number one died. And then he had freebie number two, and freebie number two died. And then the family legend is that he decided he was going to go get him some beagles so he could run rabbits better. So he went to this guy's house. And uh, I, I don't know if he advertised in the paper or it was just word of mouth to buddies or whatever, but... Went to this guy's house and he's got these this brother and sister out of the same litter, beagles, beautiful dogs running around in the house, just as happy as they could be. They were they were uh, pretty young pups, but they were already trained to the guy's voice. He would you know, give them voice commands, and they were they were minded pretty good, which you know is pretty not typical for a beagle because right. they're pretty stubborn dogs. Right. 
And uh, so he paid the guy whatever he paid and bought those dogs home, and they, they bought them in the house. And uh, the dogs started running into the furniture, and they would get in the corner, and they couldn't figure out how to get in the, out of the corner, and they were bumping into at each other and falling all over themselves. And took the dogs to the vet, and both <laughs> dogs were stone blind. Oh, God. <laughs> no. I think you got a little bird dog PTSD. <laughs> shooting with both of you um both of you guys um because i know that's a huge part of it and and it seems to me like all three of us are actually um pretty avid shooters and and 
pretty uh, pretty avid gun enthusiast. Am I am I wrong in saying that? Well, I don't think so. Par- par- partially on the on the on the clays, you know, and I I, I wing shoot and live birds a lot. Right. You know, well, you you told me you don't shoot it. You shoot if it flies, you shoot it. <laughs> right. Well, you know, and clay pigeons. The problem with clay pigeons is you have to marinate them so long. I don't <laughs> do so much better with a quail or a pheasant. Right. I don't shoot many clay pigeons because I don't I don't have the time to marinate them. That exactly. Look. <laughs> I don't know what kind of brain you got to use, but every every recipe that we didn't try, it don't work. It's a special slow cooker you need. Right. <laughs> right, exactly. Now, which one that is, uh, for some odd reason, I can't find it. <laughs> aside, aside from my good old shotgun, but I, I keep seeming to break them then, so... Um, but yeah, so I, I, what I like is talking to folks about guns and again, both of all of us, when, uh, when I met you guys and introduced and was introduced to you all, um, we got into a, a conversation about shotguns. So let's, let's be material real quick. What kind of guns are you carrying? What, what kind of guns are you guys hunting with all the experience that y'all have? Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh wow! Uh, because he, that, those are the two guns that they had that were auto loaders. Uh-huh. The 1148 was an incredibly uncomfortable gun to shoot. It, the length of pull really was set up more for a a youth or a, a or a female. And as I got older, it got taller and longer arms. And mm-hmm. It became it, it had that long chain recoil action, and that thing would kick you as hard as a 12 gauge pushing a little 28-gauge shell out of it, or a uh, uh, um, uh, 28-gauge buckshot out of it, or a bird shot. Wow. And it just was very uncomfortable to shoot. Um, and then I, when I, after I shot that first pheasant hunt and that round of sporting plays, I went out and bought myself a, Le- a Remington 1187 sporting play, and that had the light-profile barrel. Mm-hmm. Well, with that light profile barrel, you could bird hunt with it, but you couldn't duck hunt with it because it wouldn't stay in it. I believe it was just a two and three quarter inch chamber. Yeah. Um, And because of difficulties with it, actually on a European hunt with Joe, Mm -hmm. I think it was one of the first times I got to hunt with Joe uh, pheasant hunting, which was an absolute honor. Um, I started having mechanical issues with it. it. It was brutally cold that day, too. I think the air temperature was maybe 15 degrees. And uh, I tried to field strip it to figure out what was wrong with it. And mm-hmm. because of all those miscellaneous pieces that go inside the receiver, I couldn't get it back together because as soon as they hit that super cold air, everything shrank. Yep, yep. And nothing would fit. So I did all the research to figure out what I was going to replace it with. So now I run a, a Beretta A400 light 12-gauge, uh, a Beretta A390, AL391 12-gauge. Mm. Um, I've got a Franke 20 gauge auto loader and it was the last gas auto loader they made before they went to the inertia driven uh, recoil system I still have that 11 uh, I still have a model 58 and then I have a Browning Feather Lightning 16 gauge over and under with uh, and I run Briley screw in chokes and most of my guns right 
Right. And then uh, my wife is my best sporting play partner, and she shoots a little frumpy 20-gauge autoloader herself, and she's pretty good with it. Uh, uh, look, that's what that was another thing that kind of caught me, too. You know, I um, my wife has been my, my hunting partner for a minute. She's not going to shoot anything. But, you know, doesn't it feel good? She'll just go out there with me is what I'm saying. But doesn't it kind of feel good when your lady's out there with you? Yeah, it does. And it's, it's funny all the stupid comments that they got the other gunners make because women are so rarely seen on a sporting play course, especially carrying a gun. Mm-hmm. And they always want to have little these little quips and stuff. And uh, she's pretty good at shooting them down. That's what I, and, and that's what I'm saying. You mess around and talk too much, you mess around and get you, stick your foot in your mouth. <laughs> yeah, don't talk, don't talk smack. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I, look, I'm here for it, man. Joe, what what you carrying, man? Well, uh, I don't know if we got enough time to list them all. Oh, Lord. <laughs> I've got a good good collection. And just say that I've got four tens, 28s, 20s, 12s, and multiples <laughs> of each. You got one, two, three, all the way to four ten. <laughs> yeah. And so uh, for waterfowl, I shoot primary Benelli's. Okay. And I, I started out with the, with the Black Eagle, Super Black Eagle. Then I've got the Super Black Eagle 2, and I've got the brand new Super Black Eagle 3. And so uh, that's what I use for waterfowl. For upland uh, shooting uh, as an adult, you know, uh, I, I used Remington's for a long time there, and now I've kind of transitioned to Berettas, mm. et cetera. See, and, uh, that, that's know, why I like y'all on here, because y'all are Beretta men. Right. Yeah, and when I go out, you know, I I, I don't want to be pulling that trigger and to kill that third or fourth bird, and there's nothing there. Right. So I use primarily semi-automatics. Okay. Uh, I've got a match pair of Pillar Peerless Remington break open, so that when I twelve gauges, so when I do go to Europe or someplace, and that's our club that that's all they allow is break open guns, then you know I can I can play the game, et cetera, et cetera. Wow. Uh, my first. My first shotgun uh, that my dad gave me, my first 12 gauge, and we'd go out rabbit hunt, and that, those rabbits would run, and I'd roll them like no, no tomorrow. <laughs> and then, uh, and then uh, you know, we'd get into quail, and man, I couldn't hit those quail at all. And we'd go out to western Kansas, yeah, and uh, I'd shoot pheasant, and I'd just knock pheasant down. And I said, well, it's not that much bigger, <laughs> until I found out that the only gun that he could afford was a twelve gauge full choke, <laughs> and, I'm, and I'm trying to and I'm trying to shoot quail with that full choke, not knowing any better. Right now, the big the big thing that I do now, all of my guns have fingertip chokes, and so I I change chokes a lot in mm-hmm. the field depending on the situation. Huh. And so like like for early morning shooting, uh, in a duck blind, I may put in a, a skeet choke, and it most it improves. But when I'm shooting those 50 and 60 yard shots, then I'm putting in a modified mm-hmm. with steel, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So I, 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 every gun I have, I change the chokes on it as I'm as I'm working with them from the uh, 410s, 20s, 28s, and 12s. Okay, okay. And, and I I caught that fever pretty bad from being around Mr. Anderson and, and his shooting partner. So all my guns have uh, finger chokes in them as well, and I'll I, I'll have. You know, the choke in the gun and one or two in my back pocket. Man. To the field and or even on the, on the sporting play range, I'll switch up chokes every now and then. 
I was just having a conversation with another gunner that I shoot with often. Uh, how funny it is that before you just shot the gun, right? Whatever choke you had, that was it, right? Now all of a sudden you miss and you start second guessing, <laughs> you start switching up chokes, <laughs> right? <laughs> it's a convenient fall that oh. I, well, look, hey, hey, don't talk too loud now, because when I miss, that's that's my fallback. So, <laughs> don't tell too many secrets now. You mess around and put me out. <laughs> that is, but, you know, it, it, it is pretty rare to see this sixteen over and under with uh, extended screw and chokes in. Man, you know, now I'm, look, I'm carrying it. Most people don't even know what it is. They actually think it's a twenty. Right. They see the, the bore on the barrels. Well, can can we? Can we talk about the six? Look, can we talk about the sixteen gauge between the three of us? Can we talk about the sixteen gauge? That is my favorite, uh, my favorite round, man. Like that's that is my favorite shot size, honestly. It it, it knocks birds it's down. To be the, it's supposed to be the optimum uh, one ounce of number. I forget what, what size that. Mm-hmm. Numbers a number I think I think it is a one ounce number six, uh, sixteen gauge shell. Yeah. Out of a sixteen gauge, it's supposed to create a perfect pattern for knocking down an upland bird. Yep. Yep. I yep. don't know if that's true. I've never patterned any of my guns, but I like it because what I'll do, uh, since uh, I got into European hunts, is I'll shoot a twelve gauge on a European, mm-hmm. especially if it's a windy day. Yeah. Yep. Shooting, you know, a uh, couple hundred rounds on a European. Mm-hmm. So I'll drop down to either a 20 or a 16. And actually, my first grouse and woodcock I took with my 16 gauge because I, I kept going back and forth. And then it's the shortest. All my guns have 28 inch barrels. Right. But even with 28 inch barrels, since it's the pretty open gun, it's the shortest gun that I have. Right. And I figured in the grouse woods, that was going to be the, the best handling gun. So that's the one I took. Man. And it's just, it's just a throwback to learning how to shoot with my father. He mm-hmm. had a 16-gauge, and that's what I learned on. Right. And, and I still, I actually still remember the old paper cartridges that would make confetti when you shot them because it would blow the end of the paper cartridge out the out of the bore with the Really? Wow. So, if I, are you saying I'm that young? Because I've never seen that before. Exactly. Exactly. Well, and that's, you know, that was a big thing for me, you know, for guys like me, I've only been hunting three years. Um, and 
when I first got out there, man, I thought it was just like a lot of people. I thought it was what you had and, you know, the, the material that it was and the different types of, you know, uh, supplies and tools that you take out and make your hunt better. But I mean, gentlemen, I think we can agree if you can't shoot, you can't shoot. <laughs> I mean, you know, it don't matter where you're shooting or what type of game bird. If you can't shoot, you can't shoot. You're not going to bring nothing home. And, 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 it, and people, and it varies about what you grew up with. Like, I grew up upland hunting in Kansas and everywhere else. Mm-hmm. When I started duck and goose hunting in Canada, pass shooting was a major learning experience for me. Yeah. And it, took, it took, me, took me more than a year or two to learn how to lead those ducks coming in and and bring them down on the wing. Right. So it's a a wonderful thing. Well, talk about that some more, especially in the fact that you, I mean, those Canada ducks that you told me you're shooting, you, you're catching the first ones that, like you say, they hadn't seen a human. They hadn't seen anything yet. You know, our our season uh, here in the, in the Detroit area uh, opens up and, and because Detroit is on the Canadian border, I do more, uh, duck and goose hunting in Canada than I do in Detroit because of the there's a a, uh, a hunting lodge uh, over there that's about an hour from the tunnel and the border that uh, we enjoy uh, just probably some of the best uh, duck hunting in the country. Wow. Etc. But not only do I do that and early goose starts uh, uh, September one uh, and and you're you're shooting. You know the local geese, where the limit is, is is six or eight geese, and then when you get down into the regular two to three, when you have the migratory birds come in. But in addition to shooting around here, uh, I go to Saskatchewan where I shoot snow geese, and mm-hmm. then we go to Alberta, Canada, where we shoot uh, dark geese. And those dark geese in Alberta, Canada, are coming right out of the tundra. Never seen a robo duck. Never seen a, duck, a, a cornfield. But when they come out of the corn, out of that tundra and and see those those cornfields that coming in, you you it, you can't get any better shooting than that right. over in Alberta. Wow, wow. I mean, you know, and and Daryl, pardon me, because we 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 are a little shorter on time with Mr. Anderson. So pardon me if I if I spend a little bit more time on this question. But you know, people first of all. Whether it, it doesn't take rocket science to know that Saskatchewan, Alberta, all of these places, I mean, if you're a duck hunter, these are the meccas, right? Like, I mean, they, these are these are the places that you want to go. So, Mr. Anderson, how is it that you've managed? Well, talk about, first of all, all of the places that you have traveled to hunt. Um, and then let's talk about how you even got there. Look, hey, look, I'm trying to look, I'm I'm trying to steal some time from him now. Like, come on. <laughs> well, you know, and, and, and let me and let me correct let me correct you on, on one thing. What's that? Uh the place we go to duck hunt that has no equal is Argentina. Okay. All right, so now I go to, I go to Argentina a lot of people most people go to duck, to Argentina to shoot doves. Yeah. My friends and I started shooting ducks in Argentina almost 20 years ago. And the places, the, the, the limits they give you down there is the number of boxes of shells. And so the number of birds you hit 
is how many Brits, how many birds you get in four, five, or six boxes of shells. So right. Be two guys in a blind, and they'll give give each of you, depending on where you are, four boxes, which is a hundred, and each of you. So you got two hundred shells, and or five boxes or six boxes. I've never been, you know, a place that gave you more than six. So with three hundred shells. You know, on a good day, you can shoot a lot of ducks, and uh, they 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 feed and bait the ducks down there, and 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 unlike you're limited on that in Canada and other places, so it is it is magnificent shooting. But I've shot ducks in Denmark, I've shot ducks in South Africa, I've shot ducks in Canada, I've shot pheasant in England, I've shot I've driven grouse in uh, Scotland. Uh, and Red Lake Partridge in Spain. So, and our next trip is to uh, New Zealand, where we're going to shoot ducks and geese. Man, so what, can can I can I hop in this in, in your suitcase? Can I how can, how can I get there? <laughs> hey man, I've been asking if you needed a gun valet for years. Look, that's all. Do you need somebody to reload? <laughs> well, and and when you and when you're shooting driven gals in Scotland. You need a loader. Really? Because these birds are coming at you 70 miles an hour on the wind. Right. And if you see, if you if you pick it up in front of you 20 to 30 yards out, and they're only coming in at 10 or 12, 12 uh, yards off the ground, so you can't move your gun barrel fast enough to cover them. And wow. so we wind up shooting more birds, more driven grouse out the back door than out in front. Because you can't move your barrel fast enough. Now, when you dri- shoot driven pheasant in England, those birds are up 50, 60 yards. So right. then it's a, big, a matter of learning how to lead it up there 50 or 60 yards. Right. And so, again, it's a totally different experience. And you have to learn in each other. Right. And and each culture, it, you know, each culture has its own type of shooting, right? Like. And, and, and so let me amplify that point okay. very, very quickly. When, when we shoot driven pheasant in England, a bird will come will be coming in at 20 or 30 yards and they'll say, no bird. Because the culture in England is it's not sporting to shoot a pheasant below 40 or 50 yards. Really? And if it's a, six, and if it's a 60 yards, that's a real shot. So wow. when, a, when a pheasant is coming through at 20, 20 yards, they call you off. You can't shoot it. That's the culture in England. Wow. That's crazy. Okay, so yep. and and the thing is, I watch so much stuff nowadays. Um, you know, a lot of European videos, English videos, Dave Carey, and so and and they're you know at this point, I think the English guys they're building their ammunition. I'm sorry, they're building their guns around the ammunition, if that makes sense. So they're they're making ammo to reach out longer, to reach out higher. You know, they're making Kent cartridge loads that are you know. 60, 70, 80, that'll reach 60, 70, 80 yards in the air. Yeah. yeah wow. Wow. And so, Daryl, talk about some of your, um, some of your experiences. I know you, you know, world traveler too. I'm trying to be on your level. Well, <laughs> no, I, I am not on Mr. Anderson's level at all. <laughs> Right. I, you know, thinking that he, you know, he's here somewhere near me, and that answer came back Norway, 
Right. It, it, look, you'll be a little, you'll be sad if I keep talking. If I'm not mistaken. Yeah, yeah, that's that's relatively new. So I have never experienced duck hunting until Joe was gracious enough to invite me to do it and taught me everything. Lit the man literally lent, lent me everything that I needed because the only thing I had to do it was uh, I had long johns. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Say, that's a year-round job. Well, yeah, I, I, and I actually use it to test my gear and my equipment up. I right. would rather find out that the boots that are supposed to keep 
your feet warm to minus 20, don't. Right. When I'm a quick walk away from the parking lot and the clubhouse. Right. Instead of on a day that I've committed to be out in the field all day for six or eight hours and I'm stuck. Or, mm. you know, I, I like, I use my, you know, I test different gun oils. Which, which oil is going to turn rock hard on me when it's 15 degrees out? Or right. turn into goo when it's wet out? I'd rather test that out on a sporting play range than after I've made the commitment that I'm going to be a gun at a shooting event. That's, exactly. That's not going to work out. So. Well, you, look, you'll be a gun for that day, and if it don't work out, I guess you won't be getting invited back. You know, either, but you know what? The thing about it is, uh, even that time I had the issues with the Remington, there was a guy right on the spot shooting the same European as Joe and I, mm-hmm. and he walked up and he said, is that 11, uh, 1187? I said, yes, sir. He said, see that pickup with the tailgate open over there? Yep. There's a gun case laying there. There's a gun just like the one you're fiddling with in that gun case. Why don't you go get that and finish the European hunt? Hey, look. I had no idea who this man was, but he was gracious enough to let me borrow his gun to finish the European hunt because my my dad's 16-gauge, this was before I had an SUV and capability to get out in the field, was in the trunk of my car back at the clubhouse. Right. So uh, I learned two lessons that day. Number one, That's that's been my thing too. Yeah. If you if you're out there to shoot, you you, you got you got to have something to back it up, you know. And some guns are more prone to to break than others. But uh, like I've owned eleven eighty sevens and just flat worn out over the years. And right. Like these like these European shoots that uh, Daryl is talking about, we do. They're thousand bird pheasant shoots. Yeah. We're releasing a thousand pheasants. Right. Now, real quick, Mister Mister Anderson, real quick before we let me interrupt you. Um, for my listeners that don't know what a European shoot is, we're just talking about a tower shoot. We're talking about a, a tower shoot out of trees. Yes. 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 And, and the way we do it here in the Michigan area is there's a release area in trees, and I've been shooting this one for fifteen, fifteen, twenty years. Well, the trees have gotten taller and taller, which means the pheasants have gotten taller and taller. Right. <laughs> and harder to knock down. But a European shoot is where the birds are thrown or released, and they fly up and then fly over the trees, and you're among a circle of hunters that are trying to bring them down. And these sometimes are 20, 30-yard shots, and sometimes they're 60 and 70-yard shots. Right, right. And... I mean, what it is, you guys are speaking to what it is that I really stand for. Um, And and part of that has a lot to do with, um, I guess, is it recruitment wouldn't be the right thing to say, but I guess it is hunter recruitment in a way. So I've met a couple of guys um, from Project Upland and and a few other organizations, Project Upland, Aja DeRosa, very, very good folks. And on the podcast episode that I had with them, they were talking about the R3 initiative, right? A lot of people are, are engaging in it, and I think I'm probably one that indirectly does it. So R3 stands for uh, Recruitment, Retention, and Reactivation, right? Well, as African-American hunters, it's not that many of us out there or 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 
seen really, but I think it's important that we do notate and document the one, those of us that are out here and also bring more people in. Now, let's talk about the other uh, part of recruitment. How is it that you guys are assessing people to make sure that their gun safety and all of that stuff is up to par? Because it can be kind of annoying when you get somebody out there that's carrying in a gun the wrong way or anything like that. How is it that you guys are assessing whether or not you want to go out and hunt with someone? Joe, why don't you go first since you've got limited time? Uh, what, what, what has been my experience is to go to places that give a safety talk. And if I, if I have friends that know absolutely nothing about it, then I will take them to the gun club, which is about 15 minutes from my house, and I will give them a break open gun and get them working on being comfortable with the gun and then working on the safety associated, like when you leave the clubhouse to go out to the skeet range, the gun is broken open. Mm -hmm. And you just keep ingraining in them, these are the requirements, because there's no taking that shot back, right. et cetera. Right. And it's, 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 you know, I work with people, and they understand it, and they get it, and so forth, and uh, you just, just keep going. But it's absolutely critical. The, the place that I go that does it better than any, any place else is down in your neck of the woods, Riverview Plantation. Yes, sir. Let's and talk they, about that, too. I want to get there, too. They have a videotape that every hunter has to watch, and then breakfast before you go out for that first hunt, they bring somebody into the breakfast table with the four of you or six of you or eight of you, however many, and you get a full safety talk. And it's not every time you think about going out, it's every time you revisit the place. Yep. So I have been there dozens of times, and every time I go, I watch the videotape, and I get the safety talk. Right. And that's how you keep it safe. Right. 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 Daryl, how about you? Well, what I do, it's, it's similar to what Joe does, but what I do is, is somebody exp expresses an interest in it, the first thing I'll do is I'll have a conversation with them, and I'll, I'll determine that. Have you ever fired a, hand, a weapon before? You know, handgun, long gun, rifle, BB gun, anything. Um, if not, my first step is to take them with me to the sporting play range that I go to, because ninety percent of the time your gun is empty, right? And the breach is open, right? And it's a slower pace, and there's no need to rush. And then I help them, like Joe, get to understand how the gun functions. You know, how to load the gun safely, where the safety is, what you do, what you don't do with it. And, I, and during that session with them on the sporting play course, I'm actually watching them. Right. Because if somebody's going to do something stupid, I would rather have them do it stupid when chances are the gun is empty and the breach is open than once we get out in the field. Right. Um, and I think those safety talks are very critical because I had an experience where I uh, was shooting in a sporting play outing and... Uh, it was at a local hunt club, and two guys, a father and a son, show, were invited uh, by the host that had invited me. And they got to the gun club late. They missed lunch, and therefore they missed the uh, safety talk. Right. So they just put them on a golf cart and brought them out to the station that we were on. And 
it was obvious from the first time he looked at them that one of them had a brand new gun out of the box and the other one had not handled the gun at all. Right. <clears throat> and the host was hesitant to take that on. He just kind of introduced them to everybody and let them go. And there were a couple times where I noticed their guns in the rack with the breech closed. And I walked over to them and I said, gentlemen, I need you to open the breeches of those guns. Notice how everybody else's gun is open. The action is open. Your gun needs to be open like that at all times, unless you're standing in the station with your barrel pointed downrange. Right. So they went over, oh, they apologized. They broke the guns open. One was an autoloader and one was a brake gun. So the guy the autoloader broke, uh, pulled the action open, but he didn't even know how to lock it. Right. And I thought, oh, man, this is not good. He doesn't even know how to operate the gun. So I showed him how to lock the action open, and, I, and then the, the guy with the brake gun, I had him break it open, and I saw that it was empty, and I said, okay, you can lock it back and put it back in the rack. And when I told the host, I said, your, your other guests over here are not really familiar with their firearms. You should probably do something about it. Right. He didn't. Next, very next station, I noticed that they had the breach, the autoloaders closed again. So now I go over and I decide, I'm going to make a point of this. Maybe they don't actually know what a breach or the action is. Maybe mm-hmm. they don't understand the terms I'm using. I go over and I take my thumb and I rack the gun open and a shell pops out. Yep. I let it close. I rack it again. Another shell pops out. Rack it one more time. Another shell pops out. So I think that the safety talk thing is is critical and a lot of people kind of poo-poo it you can watch guys that are old hands at it thinking that you know i'm not going to make a mistake i know what i'm doing and they're not really paying it you know it's just like when you're on the airplane yep. and they're telling you what to do in case of an emergency and there's always a guy that's running his mouth and not paying attention mm-hmm. i've seen people like that and i make sure i'm nowhere near their group exactly because that safety talk really does have an impact it means something it does. And if, so once I get comfortable with somebody on the sporting play course, I'll I'll go with them a couple of times. I'm not gonna just take them out one time because I, I don't get to hunt as much as Joe does. Right. So I want to make sure that I'm comfortable with them and they're comfortable doing what they're doing, and then I'll make arrangements to get them out in the field. Hey, I I like it, and both of you guys. You know, you guys, if we're going to continue this and a lot of it for me, I asked that question because we, you know, let, let's let's not make an elephant in the room. We all know that, you know, in this culture, we have a, a stigma of not being as responsible with firearms if you catch my drift. Right. So, you know, what I think is important that we're talking about this on this podcast, because what I do want to do as representatives of African-American firearms owners, uh, upland bird hunters and, and wing shooters of any sort, I think it's important that we do have that that dialogue about, you know, safety and things, because it's cool to have a pretty gun. Right. Like we can all sit and talk about the Berettas that we have and blah, blah, blah. That's great. That's fine. But do you know how to operate that Beretta? Are you when you're around me and I take you out, you know, a concern for me is. Is this person going to shoot my dog? Right. You know, like, you know, I, I want to, 
just as a as a, a favor, and I think I've said this to you guys both, you know, when you guys come down to Georgia, I want to make sure that I can, you know, pay it forward to you guys and, and take you out on, as you know, whatever hunt that I can or, you know, set it out for you when you get here. But it's different knowing that I don't have to have that con that safety conversation with you guys, but with an inexperienced hunter or an inexperienced shooter, no, we're going to go over that thing, uh, you know, like Joe said, as many times as we need to. And it's a non-negotiable, you know, exactly and, right. and, 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 if, and, and, and when you're, when you're working with young people, yep. that's the ideal time mm -hmm. to get it started. Teach, teach them when they're young, right. and that's a requirement to go, to go out in the field. Well, and, and to second that, and I want to catch you, Joe, because I know I'm running out of time with you, but to second that point, um, you know, I grew up shooting firearms, pistols. You know, I grew up shooting a 38 Special and a 357. That's Those were my granddad. He was a postal inspector. Those That's what he carried. And so that was the gun that I learned on, but every time they were both revolvers, right? I like revolvers because... You can open them and you can actively see whether or not there's something in that gun chamber. A lot of the reasons why I shoot a double barrel and all of my guns are now only double barrel for that same reason. And guess what I'm going to when I do have a child, guess what I'm going to teach my child on that 99 year old 410. Why? Because it's a single barrel break open gun, you know, so all of that to say it's, I'm, I'm glad that we're having that safety um, conversation because I do want the stigma of African-American shooters to die. I do. I, I just want that negative stereotype to, to gone by the wayside. Um, now, Joe, a couple of things. So, Mr. 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 Joe, Mr. Daryl, um, what I like to do on this podcast and I, I've just started to do it um, with my wife every time every so often she'll pop up on here we had this crazy idea to talk about this thing called Covey Confessions what that is is basically and I know I, I didn't give y'all this one I never give anybody this one um, I, I didn't put this one in the show notes right I <laughs> I want to know I, uh, before you guys before uh, uh, Joe leaves what is your Covey confession? And what that is, is basically the, the, the biggest mistake that you've ever made while you were wing shooting. It, it could be anything. Uh, that's an easy one. I was in Georgia, your state, mm. shooting, shooting with the governor of Georgia <laughs> a few years ago. And it was a business outing. And the guy that was arranged and invited me was setting it up. So he put me with the governor. And we were shooting wild birds, wild quail, and they gave us a speech and said, hey, we only want to shoot one or two birds on the cubby rides, and then we'll move on so we don't, you know, wipe out the cubby. Right. So the governor and governor, his partner got off, and they shot the cubby rides and, and got a bird or two, and then it was me and the other guy that was with me. We got out and shot, and so got out to shoot. Dogs went on points. Birds got up. I shot one time. Five quail fell dead. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> Look, it's, it's like it's a good thing, but it's a bad thing. <laughs> it, it, it was exactly what they told us they didn't want to do. It wiped out the cup. <laughs> you shot one time and wiped the whole world. <laughs> one shot, five dead quail. So that's, my, that's my worst mistake with the governor of Georgia. 
Four of them just dropped dead out. Right. They were like, oh, shoot. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I guess it's yeah. past the 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 firearm statue of limitations. Like if there if yeah, there so ever now, such. So now, uh, and, and to eliminate the possibility, since I just shoot multiple gauges like Joe does, I have a pouch that is it is individually marked for twelve gauge shells only. Man. And I have a sixteen gauge pouch and I have a twenty gauge pouch. It's... And when I go duck hunting, and I haven't really gone in the last couple of years. To Absolutely. Mr. Anderson, it has been a pleasure and we will definitely have a follow up episode with you um, very soon. So just um, follow up with me as soon as you can and let's get another date on the books. All right. Sounds good. Hey, Hey, thank you. talk about this first of all you know how some folks when they get on they got they just got that voice that says i know i'm the, i'm that deal yeah that's what just happened yeah. <laughs> he just, that, that man got on here sound like barry white <laughs>
Well, I'm. And the thing that we we met at a wedding in Hawaii. Get out of here. For another individual. Yeah. Wow. 2010. What look? What were the what were the odds? Well, it's really interesting because the groom, the night everybody got invited was on Maui, and the night everybody got invited, it's a really long story. I won't go through the whole thing. Mm-hmm. But the night everybody that was invited to the wedding got on the island. The groom and the, and the bride called everybody and said, come to the pool bar at Ritz-Carlton Kapalua. We're going to have a cocktail party and introduce everybody. Nice. And when I got there, the groom said to me, you used to bird hunt. And again, it's just one of those things you get to know people and you find out little tidbits about their life. But he's one of those people that hangs on to that kind of thing and remembers it and uses it when it's beneficial to someone he said you need to talk to that guy right there he flies all over the world on birds right i had no clue who he was and i it, you know it was a pool party it was loud everybody was having a good time so it wasn't really a place to have a in-depth conversation the next morning we get out to the uh wedding and it's on a cliff overlooking the pacific ocean it's one of the most incredible settings i had ever seen literally 35 minutes prior to that, it was a torrential tropical downpour. It was raining so hard, there was six inches of water in the gutters. And it was a formal wedding outside with no plan B. Wow. And my, I, you know, my wife's got this beautiful gown on, I've got a white dinner jacket on, and you know, tropical weight tuxedo pants. And we're in our condo look at each other like, how are they going to have this wedding outside? It's, it's like a monsoon out there. Right. So we decided we could get in the car at the condo and drive over to the hotel without getting wet. And we said, you know, they got to have a plan B. It's a Ritz-Carlton. They're not going to let these people's wedding get ruined. And we get there five minutes before the wedding. The rain stops almost as if somebody shuts a switch off. The sun came out, dried everything out. And it was this beautiful setting overlooking the Pacific Ocean. And there, sitting in the first two chairs of a friend's row, were Joe Anderson and uh, his girlfriend at the time, who was now his wife. Wow. And I sat right behind him, tapped him on the shoulder, said, I don't remember, know if you remember me from last night, but Keith was telling me that you're an avid bird hunter. Right. And he launched into this story about what he does and it was absolutely amazing the first thing he said is let's stay in touch i want to get you out when we get back right and the first thing he did is he invited me to this thousand bird european hunt at his private hunt club that he belongs to and i went to that the next thing he did is he invited me to go duck hunting and i got to experience duck hunting and um i i i won't say I hunt with him on a regular basis, but I hunt with him quite often, and it's one of the joys of being able to write in my hunting journal that I was on a hunt with Joe Anderson today, and here's what happened. Right. I mean, and that's that's a key, and and I I didn't even know you had a hunting journal. That's a you didn't spurred up a new conversation, but I think that's key, man, is meeting those folks you know, in the industry that we look up to, right? Like I just had that opportunity myself um, to meet a gentleman named Neil Carter Jr. And Daryl, you would love him. You look. I think I saw the pictures that you took with him. Dude. You shared them with me. 
when I tell you, okay, just in terms of people, you know, just like Joe Anderson that had just been in the game for a minute, right? Like, for me, meeting Neil Carter Jr., and he's another one of us. He's another brother that just, he been in the game longer than Joe, put it that way. Seen a whole lot of different uh, changes over time that have happened in, in, in just life and history and still managed to, to be able to sustain a, uh, you know, very lucrative, very profitable career in bird dogs and in upland hunting, you know. And there's so many of us that are very effective and quality representatives of the bird hunting industry that are African-American, but so often are we not seen, you know, like, you know, you reached out to me via LinkedIn and a couple of other things. And, you know, I, I had written that article, but had that not happened, man, and not, and, and had we not had the internet and social media, Daryl, we wouldn't be on here talking. No, and that's the same thing that happened with the brother from Clemson. Right. Right, and and that and you know how I, I met him through another friend. Yeah, and I read that article about him in Dark and Dunn magazine. It was a we were grocery shopping one day. I'd never heard of Dark and Dunn magazine. Right. What you know? What kind of sense does that make? Right. It's like you know, Hot Rods and Pizza magazine or stuff like that. Right. And so we bought a couple issues of it, and my wife said, "Yeah, I kind of like this magazine. Why don't we get a subscription to it?" And this one comes, and here's this great article about this African American ornithologist right. in Clemson. And as I'm reading through the article, it mentions he's an upland bird hunter. Right. So I got his email out of the. Uh, I actually went to Clemson's website, uh, the firm that I work for. Mm-hmm. We do a lot of ed- higher education projects, so I'm very adept at going to university websites and finding people in their directory to contact right. and I found his name and I shot him an email and said hey bro I just read the article about you in uh, Garden and Gun magazine two of my favorite books are uh, a vintage copy of James uh, James Bond Birds of the West Indies mm-hmm. that's where Ian Fleming got the name for the spy from James mm. was a very famous ornithologist. Wow. And Ian Fleming thought it sounded right for a cocktail swilling lady lady fan spy. Wow. And uh, the Atlas of Birds of North America. And he and I started communicating. And then he told me about the young man that he was bringing on board that you know. Right, right. So I don't want, and I don't want to do a spoiler because that that's a pending podcast. If you catch, mm-hmm. you know, if you get, but. For my listeners, who we are talking about is a professor that is actually teaching uh, Hunter Morton, who is a friend of mine, um, a a damn good uh, German shorthair and just dog trainer um, out in South Carolina. I've had him on the podcast. He runs All In Kennels. Um, But Hunter is a very close friend of mine that I met through another gentleman named Richard Mumpower, who I also mentioned quite a lot that just really was a significant impact on my uh, understanding of bird dogs and things like that early on. So Hunter Morton is actually being uh, helped out by, and I'm not going to say his name yet, but he's being helped out by a very significant ornithologist um, at Clemson, black guy. And 
you know, and, and Daryl, I'm sure you can agree with what we're saying. Uh, the platform that we have nowadays due to the internet, due to just technology. And honestly, it seems to me like we're all trying to do the same thing. The platform that we have is not only highly important, but it's relevant nowadays, given a political climate, which is not good. You know, given all of these things, what I've noticed is that more and more, um, you know, white Caucasian people are ironically not aversive to having us out there. And, you know, Daryl, we were talking about that, man. You know, as long as we do our part and make sure that we're on the ball and, and, and it be firearm safety, your dogs are on point and, and they're doing well. I don't think this community is is as divisive as what people assume. And and, and just to, to follow up, because I want to ask you about that. I'm actively writing all the time about my personal um, experience with being black and being an upland bird hunter. And so many of our own people actually ask me, well, dang, you hang out on a plantation? Why would anybody do that? Or you be out there with them rednecks? Why would anybody do that? And it's with a bunch of guns, but it's not like that, man. And I've experienced nothing but gratitude and, and honestly a big welcome from the people that don't look like us that are dominant in this industry. Don't you have some experience with that? Um, I think it was the rough grouse society folks. things that entertain clients is to take them to play golf. Right. And I am terrible at golf. Tiger Woods got nothing to worry about for me <laughs> unless he's walking unless he's walking down the street and I got something in my eye and don't see him cross the street. <laughs> right. Uh, golf, golf and I signing papers and you're going to see other people. Um, but because I've had a shotgun in my hand since I was probably 10, as soon as I miss in, in Joe don't miss much. If you want to see some phenomenal shooting, uh, Joe is one of those guys that will make you a better shot because he is absolutely phenomenal. And, and, the, and the guns that he runs with, these these people are no joke. Right. Um, you know, they these are some high-quality, very effective shotgunners. They can do things with shotguns that you really don't think are possible. But uh, as soon as I miss a clay or a feathered uh, bird, I know exactly why I missed it. Yeah. And, uh, but before the recent election, I really didn't think about too much where I was going to hunt to pursue my passion. Going down to Ohio, going way up in northern Michigan. I, I didn't think twice about it. I would just go because in my experience, most of the people I have experienced almost to a person bird hunting and even shooting sporting clays have been some of the most friendly, gracious people that I have ever met. Mm -hmm. Everybody's very welcoming. Um, there are times when they are curious, which right. is a good thing. I want them to have, I want people to ask a question. If you don't know, there's nothing wrong with asking a question. But uh, I, it was very easy to run into uh, uh, a, a person you really didn't want to be dealing with 
on the golf course. You could run into them in the parking lot right. and drop your bag on. You know, calling you over, hey boy, come get my bag and take it up front for me. Um, but I've yet to run into that knock on uh, <laughs> Look, that was, my dog my dog heard you. He thought somebody was knocking at the door. <laughs> And, you know, in the area of Michigan where we work, 
probably doesn't run into too many people that look like me. Well, from what I understand as far as Michigan goes and, and you know, Wisconsin and all of that stuff, I mean, and, and it's just the way that demographics work out. It's a lot of us that are just, literally just don't live there. And those of us that do live there, I mean, and this is coming and uh, from a, a very close friend that I, I do respect his opinion. He was like, those of y'all that are here don't really make a good name for your, for, for, you know, those of y'all that aren't out acting crazy. Does that make sense? Yeah. I, I, I yeah, and so that's why it was so important for me to have, you know, um, you and, and Mr. Anderson on because, I don't know, man, I'm just very passionate about changing that narrative, but I'm also very passionate about educating everyone, blacks, whites, it doesn't matter, you know, Hispanic, whatever the case may be. I'm interested in educating people on the real histories of what it is that we're doing, but also you're talking about somebody that was born in 1990 that, you know, I went to private school my entire life. So I'm used to an environment of inclusion, but I'm also been exposed to folks that are not okay with us entering the industry. But I'm also educated enough to know to do the research and the research has shown that historically we as African-American hunters, we've been doing this for a long time. And I mean, and by doing this, I mean bird hunting. That's been my thing. We've we've been breaking dogs and we've been hunting birds since. And we've been guiding, we've been guiding for hundreds of years. I mean, look. That 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 was the job that didn't get you killed. Right, that was one, and that was one of the only jobs you could have where you could actually interact with white folks on a regular basis was being a guy on a quail plantation, exactly, or being a, a, a hunting guide or a fishing guide, and people respected those people because they offered a valuable service. They had a knowledge that they didn't have, an ability that they didn't have, just like this guy that we uh, grouse hunted with. He was an incredible amateur naturalist. Right. We were busting through the brush, and he was showing me, pointing out things. You know, at one point, we're walking through this. I don't even know how to describe it. It looked like poison ivy to me. Wow. And I said, and I said you know, this, this stuff's growing so big, it's up to your waist. Yeah, I'm six foot two, so I, you know, I've got a, I'm a pretty tall guy. This stuff was all the way up to your belt. It's wrapping onto your brush pants and wrapping uh-huh. around your boots. And I said, how do you guys get all this poison ivy oil off your clothing when you get done doing this? And the guy turned around and goes, he grabbed the leaf off of the plant and ate it. Wow. Poison ivy? (laughs) Wow. What it was. He's like, oh yeah, you can eat this. You can can cook these leaves. It it just looks like poison ivy. That's not poison ivy. Poison ivy doesn't grow in most upland bird hunting environments. Wow. I had no clue. Never knew that. You just taught me something. He's pointing out this flora and fauna, and you know when we when you know I got really excited. I got I got my first woodcock first, and uh, he's showing me how you how you figure out how you sex it. You know the length of the bill, and, and the the tail feathers, and, uh, and and when he saw that I could I could shoot and that I was safe in the woods, it even it made him even more comfortable and even 
more eager to show me what to do now. He damn near killed me. Right. But I said, what's going to come this rough hunt? Oh yeah, look, if you not if you're not ready for it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I'm look, I'm I'm itching for it. Look, I look, I'm itching for it and I've been reading, I mean, Grouse book. I had an author on here, Andrew Wayman, who is a, a I mean, you would enjoy his book. It's Idaho Rough Grouse Honey. I've got two more grouse books. You know, I'm I'm drinking my grouse Kool-Aid. Uh, you know, because I'm about to get on my first one this year, and I'm gonna hunt them. I'm gonna hunt them with a lab. You know, and and because I I hear about them, and I hear that you know they're very uh, skittish birds, and and we have them here in Georgia in the Appalachians, and I'm gonna find me one, man. And you know, you're an RGS member, but you know, Daryl, we've been chit chatting a minute since we actually got introduced uh, to each other, um, and. Dude, you know, as an RGS member, you inspire me to do it, number one. Um, but number two, I, you know, I want to get out in the grouse woods with you, man. And and, and you just got to put boot leather on the ground. But you know what's oh, crazy? Yeah. You, you need some legs underneath you, man. You, yeah. You got, I'll tell anybody, if you uh, have any deficiency in your legs or your lower back, do not... Think you're gonna go grouse and what kind of Right. You are gonna get beat like you've never been beat down before. I thought I was in shape. And uh, I wasn't sure after our two and a half days of hunting whether I wanted to do that again. Right. Um, but beyond you know, then it, reality kicked in. It was like, well, I mean, you really didn't get yourself in condition for it. Yeah. Uh, you, need to, you need to get some more physical conditioning in into your repertoire before you partake of that again. But the RGS Society and the American Woodcock Society, again, I have gone to Rough Grouse and Woodcock Society sporting clay shoots around Michigan for the different chapters. Mm -hmm. And I roll up, and there was one in a town north of where I live, and I was, you know, like, I hate to introduce this into the conversation. You good? Come on. Since the election... Since the election, I have realized that as an African American male, and all the things that have been going on with the with the, the shooting of the unarmed men, I really have I've realized that I really have to stop and think sometime about going someplace and doing something. Yep. Which in my fifty plus years of life, I haven't had to do since I was a little kid. Right. And we would go visit an aunt in a little town in Illinois that was a pretty racist place to live and it was you know it was segregated and it was it was not uh, a very pleasant place but you know my aunt and uncle lived there and they dealt with it and we'd go down there um so i, I actually called uh, the guy who was setting up the hunt and i got his wife on the phone and i said you know i i, I really um uh, feel kind of foolish doing this but i'm just concerned about coming up to you or club to go to this um, shoot. Mm-hmm. The lady goes, why? What's wrong? I said, well, you know, with everything that's going on and all the heated political rhetoric and everything, I, I'm an African American and in my experience, there's not too many other people like me that attend your events. And she said, I will be the first person to greet you and if nobody else does, the hell with them. Right. You come you come up here and you come and participate in our rough ground shoot. Right. I, this, I went to it my second time, and again, 
the people are just as nice. We've had people, I've been in, you know, maybe taking one person with me and we end up with a squad and I've ended up being invited by those people to go to their gun club to shoot sporting plays with them. So it, it's, it's really kind of interesting with the direction the country's going in, but the group of people that are engaged in this pastime are, are just some of the nicest people. I just can't say enough. They're just some of the nicest people that I've ever met. Right. And, you know, that's something, I'm so glad you said that on here, Daryl, like, that has been a stigma, and I'm, and I'm going to open up with you a little bit on here and, and allow myself to be a little more vulnerable, but, you know, I'll, I'll tell you a, a story, and maybe I told you this, I, I don't remember, but, you know, the first time I took my dog to a, his his hunt test, um, the only hunt test he's been at, but the first one he was at, yeah, he passed, and that was great. So, you know, um, and I'm going to try to fly through it as best as I can. So what happens is we are, Ashley and I, my wife, are driving um, up to this this uh, hunt test. And, you know, you know how it is. It's one thing to see the word plantation, you know, written on something. But, it you know, it doesn't register. But when you're when it's in your face, it's like, oh, shoot. So. And, yeah, and, and that's exactly what happened. So we're driving up, and I've, I've got my, at the time, I had my old red truck. But we're driving, and you know that the, the and I'm sure this registers with you, that oh, that overarching, where the trees kind of arch over, and you're driving down that one that one lane. And it's, it's the, every scene in every slave-related movie, they show that scene. It is where the trees are arching. You're going down and you're driving up. Yeah. So we're, mind you, we drive up and uh, I'm not going to say the plantation because they were really nice people and I don't want it to be misinterpreted. But we're driving in and I'm I, up until the point that we got onto the property. My biggest concern was, did I do enough work with this dog to get him to pass a started test? The answer was yes. I'm a little nervous. But as soon as we get onto that property, that thought went out the window. And what hit me and my wife at the same time was, oh, do you see what we driving down? And she was like, yep, it just hit me. And it's just that uneasy feeling of the same thing that we have seen growing up our entire lives. At this point, I would I would be willing to put money on the board. That that is that that feeling that you and I both understand and that me and my wife got. I'm almost convinced that that feeling is genetic. Like, I, I, you know what? I'm not gonna I'm not gonna argue with you on it because it, it's a real it's a real thing that comes over you. It, it's it's a very real thing, and we were looking around like, oh well, yep, we know where uh, our people lived at, and yep. Uh, that's clearly the big house, and yep, that's where this one. And we were identified, but then catch this, Daryl, catch this. So the whole time we were there, number one, this is an HRC UKC hunt test. We are the only blacks there. And when I tell you everybody, and I mean everybody, there was not a mean-spirited bone in nobody's in nobody there. Everybody at that hunt test was extremely welcoming. 
They were extremely proud that they had a little bit of diversity there. And they were also willing to, you know, talk about their dogs, my dog, offer whatever insights. The judges knew who I was and they were very accommodating. And and, and what gets me, Daryl, is the fact that the stigma and the narrative of the word plantation is so steadily ingrained. And I think guys like you, guys like Joe, guys like Neil Carter Jr., hopefully guys like me, what I want to do is change the narrative of the word plantation because the people that we're going out to hunt with, bro, they're fine. They're cool. And yes, they're white. But, dude, it's, we're out there for the same reasons, you know? Well, and you, you're kind of taking it back a little bit. It's called a plantation because that's what it was. Mm-hmm. That's what it is. I mean, it's a name for a thing. Right. And to be, you know, it's it's like uh, this has got nothing to do with gunning or bird dogs or anything. But when uh, I first got into the position I'm in and I, I began, began uh, taking people out to entertain them and I started getting invited to private clubs, golf clubs, gun clubs, the first thing I would do was take a book of matches. If they had matches or if they had a monogram napkin, you know, a paper napkin or something, mm-hmm. I would get one of those napkins or, or a match book and I would bring, come home. My father had long since passed away, but my mother was still alive at the time and I would give her that book of matches or yeah. that napkin because I wanted her to see that her son is walking in the front door of the place. Right. And recreating. I'm not, because when she was my age, she wouldn't have been able to go in the front door. She right. She had to go in the back door. Right. And she was back a house. She was back a house. Right. So to be able to go to a plantation, whatever the name of it is, and roll up there with your dog and your gun and your shooting gear and go out just like everybody else there, in a way, is kind of taking that, taking it back a little bit. Yes. Right. I am just like you. I can do this too. And yeah, I got a Beretta just like you do. Right. <laughs> right. And, 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 and. I got a German wire hair pointer just like Just you. like you do. You know, I've, I've, I mean, and that's, that's so great. And what I want to do is, you know, non-confrontationally take ownership of the responsibility that we have as African-Americans to assimilate to the traditions that, you know, we know intuitively, but sometimes people misconstrue, you know, and, and my wife, she's, she's been in situations and, and, and thank God, you know, she's around me and she pays so much attention to what it is that I talk about, but she's been in situations where folks, kind of question her on her knowledge about bird dogs or hunting and things like that and she would you know as cool as a cucumber be like oh yeah gsp german short hair or yeah like no you're not gonna catch me on no foolishness but i'm not here for the confrontation man you know i'm here for the bird dogs you know i'm here for the wing shooting i'm here for the hunting and that's what matters man and this whole time, Daryl, you know, I think we click because we, we just laugh as much and both of us like talking. But I also think that we click despite the age difference is we're trying to accomplish the same thing. 
you know, we can partner up with a lot of folks and in, in companies and things like that because these companies are trying to um, um, create the same thing. We're all after the same goal. At the end of the day, I tell people all the time, it is hard as crap to be pissed off or to dislike someone of another race or creed or belief or anything like that when both of y'all got a double barrel shotgun or even an auto loader for you for y'all auto loader peoples. As long as you got some shot shell in your pocket, you can load it and that bird dog is classy looking good on point or flushing. Yeah. Tell me about a good time now. Don't tell me. Uh-uh. Don't do and, it. You know, uh, sadly, not one of the people that I'm uh, talking to about going looks like me. But you know what? They're good people. Right. So why wouldn't I want to, why wouldn't I want to invite them? Man. So we're going to go. We're going to make memories together and have a great time and hunt a bird that we don't get to hunt over here. Yep. Um, you know, uh, like I said, I, I don't have the wherewithal financially that Mr. Anderson has. But I do my fair share of, at, at the level I can afford to do it. Right. And uh, I just enjoy the people that I get to meet. I, I'm a people person. So, um, yeah, I, it doesn't matter to me that it's called a plantation or a hunt club. The point is, I'm rolling up just like you in my Grand Cherokee. Mm-hmm. I got two Berettas in the back and a case of shells. I bought my stuff from Filson, yep. and from Orvis, yep. and from Avery. Just like you did. Yep. And you know what? I'm going to miss birds just like you. I'm going to get me some birds just like you. And we're going to have a good time. Mm-hmm. 
we gonna laugh, we gonna look, we gonna we gonna share the lies, we're gonna laugh, we're gonna do it all. Yep. Yep, yep, yep. I mean that's what it's about. And you know, it's it's really Daryl I say I, I've I probably said it fifty million times, but I can't thank you enough for getting on here and just being as open and transparent as you have because it, it takes that, you know? And this this is uh, a recording. Well, I mean, it, I, I, go ahead. I get, I, get the, I get the Orbis Hunt book and I get the Filson catalog and, mm-hmm. you know, I enjoy looking at all the gear. I'm, I'm kind of an old school kind of guy. I like the continental type of hunting clothing. Mm-hmm. Joe, Me too. Joe was talking about and I like the old school mm-hmm. stuff. But as I'm looking through those catalogs, I'm looking through the Beretta catalog and and I'm looking at all this stuff and thinking about, okay, what do I need to replace? What do I have that I did? What, what, what's in here that I don't have that I don't need, but I, I really want one of those. I always think to myself, man, it would be so much nicer if some of these models just look like me. Right, right. With some, with some blaze orange on and a shotgun over their shoulder sporting the, the web vest. Exactly. Or, uh, you know, the, the sporting clay vest or something, because you know what? I, I do wear your stuff. Right. <laughs> right, and, and we and we all do. I mean, you know, we have the same aspirations, and 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 just to and I kind of want to go down a little slight Orbis Orbis diatribe uh, thing for a second, but you know, companies like Orbis and things, we're we're out here looking at the same you know equipment because at the end of the day, you want quality. Doesn't matter where you're coming from, you want quality. You know, and and one thing that you told me about was um the Royal Oak store for Orbis. You remember that? Yes. So let's talk about that. You know, I I, I want to highlight them for a second. Orvis has done a lot for me um and putting them on. Tell me about that or tell the listeners about that Royal Oak store experience and what made it so memorable. Well it's a it's a very nice store. Uh, it's in Royal Oak, Michigan, which is a uh, suburb north of I mean it's directly north of downtown Detroit, probably about uh, probably about 20, 25, 30 miles north of downtown Detroit. It's it's like a it's a very walkable community. Um, a lot of people are, are really drawn to it because of the, the shops and the housing and and it's just a it's a, a beautiful place. Um, it's, it's a very nice community. And that's where my, the closest over store to me is. And my wife and I are not, we're not in there constantly, but when I'm looking for new hunting gear, and, and I actually wear a lot of their just everyday clothing as well. Right. That's where we go to shop for Orbis if we don't buy it online. Mm-hmm. And I've been in there a couple times and we chit-chat with the, with the employees. You know, they're, It's a franchise store, so the, the, the person who, the guy's owner, and I believe it's his wife, yeah. Um, so this past summer, we were at a charity event being held at the Detroit Zoo. And we were, so completely out of the Orbis context. Right. We're at a evening charity event in the summertime. So everybody's got their summer sheet clothing on. And this guy walks up to me and he says, hi, you come in my store. And I looked at him and I said, I do. He goes, yeah, I own the Orbis store in Royal Oak. You're one of my customers. <laughs> and I said, well, uh, excuse me for not recognizing you, but you're not in your, uh, you know, your 
Orvis shirt and you're and you're not standing behind a cash register in your store, you can, you're kind of out of context. We were actually in the new Penguinarium that has been built at the Detroit Zoo, and we were in this underground passage, and it's you know penguins and Arctic Circle and Antarctica and all that stuff. So it had nothing to do with where I normally see him, but he remembered me. Right. And he said, I want to thank you for being a customer. And he, he had a couple of coupons in his hand for the store, you know, the 25% off coupons. He, he laid a couple of coupons on my wife and I, and he said, I just want to thank you for being a customer at my store. I really appreciate you coming in there to buy gear and clothing and let us help you out. Right. And we, we go to a lot of functions like that in my position is kind of one of the things that I do and, and, and we, we attend a lot of charity of function charity functions on our own because it's just the right thing to do when you have you know it's not hard to find somebody that does that has it a lot worse than you so if you are capable I, I've been taught it's right. always a great thing to give back a little bit I have never had somebody come up to me and recognize me as a customer in their store and thank me for being a customer in their store. Right. Right. I mean, and, uh, that's one of the reasons why, you know, Orvis is, makes up a big part of my uh, equipment for waterfowl hunting and for upland hunting. And like I said, I, I have some of their stuff that I wear as casual clothing or even business clothing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and they're always very helpful. They're always very glad to see you when you come in the store, and they're very knowledgeable. And yeah. um, it, it, was, it was just it was a pleasant moment at, at a pleasant event. Right. So it, it was all good, good all around. Right. I mean, and this. And, and it's it's a bit of, I'm not going to say it's not, it's definitely what we're talking about is a bit of promotion for Orvis. Let's just be real about it. But I'm not speaking about them just because they've looked out for me in so many different ways. Just to be honest, I truly believe in the, the company. And, you know, gentleman, a gentleman by the name of uh, Reed Bryant reached out to me and he and I, you know, see eye to eye on a lot of different things. But Orvis in and of itself, you know, they've done some things that stood out to me, kind of like you, that made me that I will never forget. I'll tell my kids about that. You know, uh, my wife and I were at the game fair uh, this past weekend down in uh, Sylacauga, Alabama. And Daryl, when I tell you those guys made the experience just legendary. I mean, you know, getting out and they were just so cool. So just, just, they were just the pe- the type of people you want to walk around the hunting field with, you know, like, I love those Yep, yep, yep. Upstate New York. Man, aren't aren't they amazing? Fantastic. You know, that was a fantastic experience. I'm looking forward to attending one again. We didn't make it this year. And uh, another time when we were up there, we actually got to shoot at the Dover Furnace um, Beretta Sporting Clay Grounds. Wow. And I, it, it really kind of worked out weird. When we got done, you know, I, I always want to get a little trinket of where I've shot sporting clays because... When we go on vacation, I'll even I'll look and see is there some place close where we can rent a gun and shoot around a sporting place. Right. So we got to shoot at Dover Furnace, and it didn't dawn on us why she was doing it until we got home, and it was a couple months later. Right. The lady was giving us uh, members 
Dover Furnace members only hats. What? The hats actually say Beretta on them, and it says Dover Furnace, and then it says member member only or member on it. And it turned out that we were some of the last people to shoot the course because they had sold the property to a local developer who was going to tear the sporting clay course out and build some type of development. And it was one of the most incredibly beautiful sporting clay grounds I have ever had the privilege to shoot on. Wow. And it's probably, it was probably along the same lines as what Orvis has at Santa Dona. And it, it doesn't exist anymore. And, and uh, we did not get to shoot at Santa Dona. But next time we go back, uh, I, I intend to at least get around in on, on their course. Man, yeah. I, you know, their sporting clays course at Purcell Farms. I mean, when I tell you it was immaculate and. You know, there was a station set up for every type of game bird that you could shoot, you know. Um, I mean, it, Daryl, it was it was crazy. So just the fact that they have such good customer service, um, they make memorable events. You know, those are the things that will keep us there. And we talk about inclusion and diversity and things like that. Well, literally just going out and making the shooting experience that good that is how we're going to retain people from a different a, a different demographic and a different minority you know yeah cuz i i'll take uh i've taken some young cats from my office out and um i tell them i warn them all i said once you do a, you shoot one round of sporting clays you're going to be hooked yep yep and i can think of um at least four people that I introduced to the sport that have now are, are shotgun owners and they might not shoot as, as regularly as I do because, uh, you know, family commitments, but, but they're out there shooting and they never experienced it until they heard me talking about it and express an interest in going. Right. And, uh, at Santa Dona, the Orvis people were, it was just, it was a phenomenal experience. I mean, I got, I got to drive a hundred thousand dollar Range Rover off road with an instructor in the mm -hmm. right seat. Um, they had the, the cook, wild game cooking demonstration. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, I remember we went in a, uh, uh, a tent and it was a gun dealer from New York. Wow. And he had a matched pair of Luciano Boas 28 gauge over and unders in this beautiful handmade wooden box and it was $230,000. Wow. <laughs> God. And I asked, Boy. I asked the guy, I said, so if I buy these, will I not miss anymore? He goes, oh no, you'll, be, you'll still miss, but you're going to look awful good. You're going to look damn good doing it. <laughs> you're going to look real good missing. Hey, look, I'll, I'll take it. <laughs> you're going to miss in style. <laughs> <laughs> He's been stoned, so that's it, all. It was quite the experience. I, would, I, would, I look forward to going back to another Orvis game fair. Well, I, I'm, I'm here for it, man. And Orvis does a phenomenal job at that. I had a very similar experience there. Um, so, you know, that's just been the, the, the crux of, of what it is that I'm talking about. Okay, so now... You know, when we talk about, you know, just introducing people to hunting and making the experience, 
um, you know, memorable and making and really making the experience something that Orvis does well, making the experience memorable enough to bring you back out there. You know, like me and my family, we definitely want to go back out to Purcell Farms and bring the whole gang. So you told me that. and and I and I feel like you're a bit of a hunting guide, and 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 you know, I maybe you are, maybe you're not, but in my eyes, you kind of are because you did tell me a story where you introduced a lady to um, upland bird hunting. She had never done it before, and you managed to overcome her confidence. And now, from what I understand, she's hooked. Yeah, well, it's actually a business associate, a really good friend of mine. He's uh, he's since. Uh, moved to a, another part of the country, but we continue to stay in touch. It was his wife, and he called me one day, and he said that his wife had told him that she wanted to try bird hunting. Right. And, and um, so, I, you know, I got my wife into shooting sporting plays. She's she's a real animal lover, so she's not going to kill anything other than a clay carpet. And as long as that the uh, whatever it was comes in the house ready for the pot, that's okay with her. But right. she's not gonna she's not doesn't want to see anything get killed. Right. Um, but my friend's wife was saying that she she really wanted to try it, and she wanted to try it because uh, he did it, and she wanted to be able to go out with him. But because of that whole husband and wife trying to teach somebody how to do something dynamic thing, she wanted me to be there. Right. And so, at the time, we were members of one of the hunt clubs, and um, they lived a distance away, so we went up, and there was an old farmhouse on the property that you could rent and spend the night, so we went up, and we had a nice dinner, and um, next morning, we got up and went and had breakfast at the, the hunt club, and we took her out, and we shot maybe three or four sporting play stations with her to get her used to shotgun and see how she was going to handle it. And then we took her back to the clubhouse, and we got to safety talk. And a guy, we got a guide and picked up the guide the dog, and uh, we went out in the field and we, you know, put her in the slot. You know, you always put her to get her in the slot, right in the middle. We we call it the slot. And then our husband and I hunted on the, on the wings. Right. And uh, she said to me as we were getting ready to go, she says, "You know, I'm probably if I kill a pheasant, if I shoot a pheasant." I'm probably going to burst into tears, but I, I really have this desire to try it. Right. It's okay, but you know, if whether you get one or not, it's up to you. If, if when, when a bird flushes, we're going to let you take the first shot. If you don't want to shoot at it, don't shoot at it. We'll go back and shoot some more sporting plays. If you determine you don't want to do this, that's completely okay. We're just here to have a good time. Man, that first bird busted out of that sorghum patch, and she stoned it. And she was jumping up and down, hooting and hollering, yelling and screaming. And after that, she got greedy. We couldn't get a bird in because she was getting all of them. Right. She turned turned into an assassin. Right. And And when we got done, she said it was one of the most incredible things that she had done. And and since then, I, I haven't taken any more females out hunting, but I have taken some females additional females out to the sporting play range and gotten them used to it and and you know my wife is usually with me and uh we we took uh, a, a a young lady that i worked with and a business and a client 
mm-hmm. up to the Hunt Club, and we had lunch, and we actually got them a lesson with the Club Pro, and um, he worked with them over two or three stations, and then we shot sporting plays, and every time I run into both of them, that's they, that's all they can talk about. I can't wait to go back out and shoot sporting plays again. Right. And I, you know, it was really impressive at one point um, at the, the sporting play range where my wife and I are regulars. We show up there. We usually go first thing Sunday morning. They open at ten o'clock. We get there right at ten o'clock. Um, shoot our round of fifty, and then we have the rest of the day left. We, you know, go and have lunch. Um, but this group of women in full sporting play regalia. There must have been ten of them. Wow were on the course and they had race guns and their names embroidered on their shooting vests and these were some serious shooters and we stopped and chatted with them for a little bit and it was so uh, great to see that nice nice to see this group of women who had decided you know golf is not going to be my game I'm shooting sporting plays right and a couple of them that you can see the pinholes in the back of their vest where they had actually shot in uh, sanctioned events. Wow. They pin, you know, they pin the number on. Yeah. You know, like the, you can see that they still had the safety pins in there with the, the remnants of the little number placket on the back. And these were some serious shooters. Yep. What and was, what, I th- you told me the name of that. I think you told me the name of that group before. Uh, what was it? Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure which group they belong to. Uh, I belong to a group called Wings and Wine Society. Okay, that's what that's what I'm thinking. I, for some odd yeah. reason, I kept thinking it was women and wine. It's Wings and Wine. That's wings what it was. Okay, yeah. Okay, uh, my bad. I got my facts wrong. Um, but I know you you've been a pretty integral part of. Uh, you know, of a, a variety of hunting groups, and I know, and which is another reason why I'm excited you're on. You've I mean, if anybody can't tell, you've been pretty significant in getting people introduced to hunting. So my my apologies for getting my information wrong. I just oh, want to, right. yeah. Um, you know, but I mean, to to go apart, not to go apart, to go back to with what you were saying. You know, and I and I'm going to speak specifically on African American women because I mean, my wife's black, so. And, and she's definitely one that I will say um, I introduced to hunting and she doesn't hunt. She's not going to kill anything. She's not interested in it. But what she does have is a respect and a very positive understanding of what it is that we do. Um, and, and so when it comes to introducing African-American women, and I'm speaking specifically on that demographic. I think it's important for us as black men to to take the range of it, you know, take the reins of it. You know, one thing I don't like is when guys get out there and they're like, ah, oh, I don't want to go, you know, shooting with my wife or ah, oh, my wife don't like it. I, I think yeah. that's bullshit. I do. Yeah. You yeah, know, you know you've been shooting as long as I have. You hear all that stuff, you know, this. And, you know, I don't want to, you know, this is my thing. I don't want to ruin it, including her. Well, like I said, my, my wife is my best boarding play partner. Mm-hmm. And, and if, if she if she were willing to hunt, she would probably be my best wingman on a hunt. Right. Um, and she's safe. She knows gun safety. 
She handles her guns safely. She's a damn good shot. And I, I wouldn't have a problem at all introducing other African-American females to the sport. We, we have one other friend that we know has done it. She used to participate. She works for a hospital, and they used to have a, uh, a charity sporting place shoot because, you know, everybody has a charity golf outing, and people get tired. And, and besides that, you know, it's you know, six, seven, eight hours to play in a golf outing, right. depending on how big it is, and you get done shooting sporting plays in an hour. Right. Or, or, you know, at the most two hours if you throw lunch in there on it. So the hospital system she worked for had a charity sporting play event. And she actually sent her sent up pictures of herself shooting sporting plays. Right. Since then, I think they got consolidated. You know, hospital consolidation is a huge thing now. Mm-hmm. They got bought up by another system, and they have since dropped that charity outing. But I, I think it would be great to get some more African-American female on the sporting play course or the track and ski range or mm-hmm. uh, even in the hunt field. Um, you know, like I said, it's not an anomaly to me because my mom did it. Right, right, and 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 that's the thing. You know, African American women have been, you know, in the hunting industry for probably as long as men have. Honestly, you know, and it, yeah, I mean, and there are pictures. Shot, yeah, they both shot trap and skeet. Yep. Um, at the, that Winchester Club, and uh, you know, they, that's where I got my love of it from. So. Right. Well, it, it just seems like a natural thing that, yeah, of course women do it. Dude, when when you come down here, um, you know, because I, I, I feel like between me or you, me and, and, and Mr. J- Mr. Anderson, you know, we're going to I'm definitely going to make it a point to, to link up with you guys and, and definitely hunt with you. And as long as you come to Georgia, you got a place to stay. And I'm, and I'm definitely going to put you on the birds best I can. But. You know, when you come down here, I want you to come to um, where I go practice uh, clay shooting, and it's a Tom Lowe uh, trap and skeet range. Well, when you get there, you're going to meet a lady named Miss Judy. Okay. Now, Mr. James, let me tell you about Miss Judy. (laughs) Okay. Miss Judy is the most trash talkingest, make you feel bad. Make you almost want to keep that receipt and get a refund on your gun. And you know we can't do none of that. So, but you know what, man? That and, and Judy's black and, and she get to talking. But when I tell you, that lady literally knows when to pull the trigger in when, when you're aiming at that clay. That lady was the one that polished up my shooting skills. Yeah, well. Mm-hmm. And, and the, the thing that I uh, have come to understand that when, when a woman is given the, the, the proper attention to, during training, when they're taken seriously, yeah. and yes, they can do this, and they're not treated like some pretty little thing that wants to shoot the big gun, right. women are usually better than men. I was going to say, I, I get more scared. Yeah. I, 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 I get more. Yeah. Yeah, I, I get more scared when women get on the clay field than I do with dudes, and that's an honest statement. Because they got that finesse and they're smooth. Yep. And, and we get up there and we start trying to muscle the gun around, and you start, you know, shooting behind the bird and stopping the gun, and, and you just watch them, and they're just, just like a machine. They're just smooth and, and, and 
effortless. Yep. And all you see is dust in the sky. Right, right. But, and you know. Guys are trash talking and talking about, you know, who's going to beat who. And they're just quietly over there playing Right. It, <laughs> while, while, look, while we over there playing a, a, a thang swinging contest, they over there uh, they over there kicking our butts without a thang at all. Yeah, they're over there you know, uh, vaporizing plays. Right. So, yeah, I, I wouldn't have a problem with that at all. I just, I wish I knew more, more African American females who would be interested in it. Yeah. And I, I've sadly not come across too many that would be interested in doing it. Right. Well, and, and, and look, and I want to, I, I, I got a couple more questions if I can take a little bit more of your time, but I do want to say, you know what woman, and, and I'm going to go all black history on you, but do you know what woman I would be scared to get on the Clay's course with? Who's that? Take it, just take a guess. Mm, there's so many. Right. <laughs> there's so many. You know this one though. I know you know this one. That could be Sojourner Truth. That could be you. Close. Jackie Cochran could be. Wow. I don't know. You know who I would be scared to get on the Clay's court with? Harriet Tubman. Harriet Tubman. Yeah. I would be. Yeah. I would be terrified to get on the Clay's course with Harriet Tubman. And if you learn about the history of how of how she did what she did, you don't want to yeah, get on the Clay. Yeah, she was a gun. She was a full-on gun. Yep. Yeah, you don't want to. You don't want to uh, get get in in the mess with her. And and thank God she didn't have bird dogs. <laughs> if she didn't steal one of Massa's dogs, English pointers, and say, "Hey, look, <laughs> come on with me." I'm sure she put plenty of meat on the table. Oh, hey, look now. I'm trying to tell you. Bruh, you got to eat something. And we, we, we don't miss. Missing means we don't eat. <laughs> and we, and look, we ain't got a whole lot of time to hunt. We don't have uh, an evening after work to hunt. <laughs> yeah. got to get out there and get it done. we got crops to plow. And, right, uh, right. Things to do, heavy, heavy duty things to do. Hey, man, I'm, I'm here for it. That's, that was one, and I like to highlight women. Now... This is, and, and this is, like I said last time, I, I took so many notes on our last conversation, man. I got pages full of it. But we were laughing about a shared experience. Now, that shared experience, <laughs> when you when the dog give you the middle finger, when you hunting birds, that dog is working and you see the stank eye. That's right. I'm on the job. <laughs> <laughs> you out here, you out here Right, right. Tell tell me about an experience where you done got the, the, the doggy middle finger. Well, it was actually on a duck hunt with Joe. I can't remember now if Joe was in the same blind or not. Because um, like, like I said, he, he rotates so people get to interact with people they might they don't know. Um, but the way that we were hunting in a cornfield blind, and the way they have them set up is the guide and the dog are sitting on a platform above and behind you and you know they're camouflaged as well with the corn and you're just kind of sitting in a sunken area down in the blind and the dog is on a little platform that allows him to come out on either side of you depending on which way the decoy spread is set up right so 
we're sitting in there, you know, you set your center line in, in the duck line, and, and the guy on the, on the left, you shoot from the center line, everything up to the sky and over to your left as far as the blind will allow you to go. And then the guy on the right does the same thing, and you don't, you don't shoot over each other. So there's uh, probably about six mallards working in on the decoy spread. And the guy's calling them, and... I think it was Joe, because Joe said, okay, if they split, I'll take the ducks on the left and you take the ones on the right. Right. Okay, so they're sitting back in the blind, stand back in the shadow, the guy's working, and these guys are um, competition-winning duck callers. Right. Out of Canada. He says, this is some serious business going on. And the ducks are working into the decoy spread, and Joe says... Take them. And just as he says, take them, almost as if they had heard what Joe had said, three of the ducks split off to the left and three of them split off to the right. And so we stand up and unload on them. And I hear Joe, bam, bam, bam. And I'm on his right. So his autoloader is kicking his soles over on me. And I, you know, I go to work, bam, bam, bam. I, I take three shots. And the dog comes down off his platform, runs out on my side. And gets out in the decoy spread, and there's not a dead duck anywhere. All three, I look up, all three of them have flared off, and they're they're headed back north, back into Canada. Wow. <laughs> and all of Joe's birds are dead on the left-hand side. <laughs> that dog, and I believe it was a, a yellow lab, that dog turned around in the decoy spread and made eye contact dead with me and gave me the stink eye. Oh, God. No, yep, that's about right. That's about and right. We locked eyes, which it seemed like 40 seconds. He looked at me and just and just was calling me all kind of names. And then he trotted over there and picked up Joe's first duck that he dropped. Mm-hmm. Turned around so I could see that he had the duck in his mouth and came back to his handler. Then they went out and got the other two of them to say, see, this is why I'm out here. Right, exactly. You're, you're supposed to drop them so I can bring them back. Dude. When I when I <laughs> exactly dude and and I and I have a yellow lab I don't know if they may be the the, the bougie women of of the the bird dog world or what oh, wow. Oh, wow. I, I don't I think and I'm gonna say this for my yellow lab male who is laying right here he is laying down right here and he he look he just looked at me because he know I'm about to talk trash about him um. Yellow Labradors, let it be recorded on air, are the blonde-haired, or for, 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 for black folks, the bougie women of the bird dog industry. Don't miss a shot around a yellow lab. Like, you're going to get cussed out. They're going to divorce you. They're going to take half. I mean, oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Bam! Dropped him like a sack of potatoes. The dog wouldn't go after the duck. He what? For a he sat there on his platform to make sure. <laughs> <laughs> I had worked for him before he came off of there and wasted his precious energy to go out in a decoy spread to get a to, for there nothing to be there. Yes. And he sat there for a minute and I heard the guy go, go, go ahead. Right. <laughs> right. Look, you know you know what that dog said to you? 
you you remember Eddie Murphy Raw? That do, that dog said, "What have you done for me lately?" Right. Right. Are you sure? Before I run out there, are you sure? What? What? Uh, 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 Daryl, what? What have you done for me lately? <laughs> right. That is silly. Oh my gosh. So, <laughs> and this is is crazy how it works out. So, all right, and I, and because I, man, Mr. James, I done called you Daryl, Mr. James. <laughs> God, Lord Jesus. Um, I'm having too much fun. Um, <laughs> let me get through this laughing. <laughs> okay, Wusa, we back. <laughs> All right, so you have so much hunting experience that I, I honestly feel like we could go on for another two hours, but we we can't because I got I got to save a little bit more and I definitely want to record you on another episode because we're not done here. But oh, what? Yeah, I, I, I gladly come back. Man. No, no. Okay, we got to save that one. Please remember to tell me that one. I want to save that one for another one. Cause, yo, we we having too much fun, man. <laughs> so you, sir, as as kind of a conclusion, you are a very, very, very avid reader. Um, you know, you yourself called yourself a bit of a bibliophile. So. And and I'm I'm a writer now. Um, I've been writing a lot. I read every night, and and all I do read, if it ain't art, uh, it's it's a sporting dog or gun dog book. Um, tell me some of the things that you're reading. What what would you find that you would say, Hey, Darrell, or Hey, Darrell's listeners, or anybody? What what would you say go out to read? And I want to list off the books that I'm reading first. And 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 okay. see if you've if you've not heard of them, just to put it out there anyway. So I'm gonna go down the list that's right next to me right now from Mike Parman. I've got a Grouse Hunters uh, Almanac from Mike Gould. I've got a Labrador Shooting Dog from Andrew Wayman, the Idaho uh, uh, Grouse Hunting um, Heartbeat of the Woods from uh, Halima Babcock. Uh, I don't want to shoot an elephant, which is a quail book. I got Mike Parman, uh, Among the Aspen, Robert Whaley, Wing and Shot, Robert Whaley, Snakefoot, The Making of a Champion, uh, Mike Stewart, Sporting Dog, The Wild Rose Way, Sporting Dog and Retriever Training, and then Halima Taha, Collecting African American Art. Now that that's my stack. What do you What do you have for the library? Somalia's prep course book. Okay. Uh, a, a bulldog drumming mystery from uh, Sapper from the 30s. Hmm. And there's probably, uh, I'm still going through uh, James Bond Birds of the West Indies. Man. Uh, there's probably various magazines and other books laying around here that got a bookmark or a dog ear on them. Right. Read through and I just put it down and I'm picking up gone on to something else. But. Um, in my library, I got Burton Spiller, Grouse Feathers, mm-hmm. um, 
Brister, Shotgunning, Holland, the Upland Game, Hunter's Bible, uh, Johnson, Grousing with the Cock, and Gunner's Guide. I got picked that up prior to my uh, my hunt last year, so to educate myself a little bit on what I was getting myself into. Right. Um, LLB, Hunting, Fishing, and Camping. Mm-mm. Uh, Brad Barnley, mainly weight shooting. Uh, Norm Strong, the art of hunting, and then uh, I usually I usually have Upland Almanac in the house. Yeah. Rise. Oh, oh, oh! Look, we didn't even get to the magazines. Oh, let's go through those too. Go ahead. Yeah, shooting sportsman. Yep. Uh, the field field sports, um, and then I thumb through various other ones that I may or may not buy a random copy of. And of course, uh, I've subscribed to the Upland Project, mm-hmm. which I find very interesting. And there's a uh, Project Upland online. Um, there's another one online that I'm, I'm blanking on right now for some reason. Yeah. Um, it was one of the first ones that was that was online. Um, so we had Upland Almanac. We had Project Upland. We've got. Uh, Dang, what else is on? What else is online? That's the question. We got a lot of books. What else is it that's online? Um, we got Upchucker. Um, hmm. If you think about it, just shoot it to me. We'll talk about yeah, it later. Just, yeah. If it, if because there there's a lot of what I'm the the reason I like to get into that um, just because it, it it may have seemed a little out of place. Um, I am a avid reader now i'm an avid reader for just random knowledge i just like reading anything but you know since i've started writing for orvis and and since i've just started writing for my own personal blog and i guess what it is that i put out is actually all right i guess um i like to stay up on upland bird hunting stuff but what i'm trying to do um for my podcast is actually start to introduce a segment of just literature, whether even if it's just listing off a number of books, it's important for us as uh, upland bird hunters to maintain that aspect of our tradition. Yeah, we have the internet, right? And and I feel like podcasts are our way of kind of uh, transitioning from the written word to uh, the auditory word, if that makes sense. Yeah. So, storytelling. Storytelling, right? Thank you. You took the word. I was trying to find the word, but you took it right out my mouth. Storytelling is an important aspect of what it is that we do as hunters, because even when we talk about like folks like Archibald Rutledge, who was writing about African American hunters as they were on the plantation, actually, and African-American bird, you know, you know, we were documented in history. But again, to create an environment of inclusion and create an environment that we are not necessarily seen as the other culture or the the anti-culture or whatever it is, I want to make sure that we're all reading the same information. You know, I've had a few listeners even reach out to me about books So my point being, it's just important that we read as much as we listen to a podcast. I think that the old guys, like I would love to know what an old African-American bird dog trainer from the 1920s would have had to say down in Georgia about training English pointers, you know? 
and 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 hopefully I can uh, uh provide that uh that reference. But I'm so happy that you were able to just give me some book references and give some listeners some book references because it, it is important. You know, the the internet is great, but what happens if the internet is gone? Right. We need. We, we need the written word. Right. And I'm in a, a pretty unique position because um, Doc, my 70-year-old grouse hunting buddy, he has had stories published in Upland Almanac and some of the other... And he knows Burton Spiller. Yep, yep. And he knows... A personal friend of his is Tom Hugler. I know Tom Hugler. Yeah, from Upland Almanac. Yeah, he... Um, he knows Tom Hugler. I have, I have yet to meet Tom, but, but Doc knows him personally. So when you're sitting down with Doc, you know, we go to a little ragtag hunt club in an area called Whitmore Lake, which is uh, west of Detroit near Ann Arbor. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's a great little place, great owner and his son are the, the owner and the guides. And it's it's a, it's re- reminiscent of when I used to go with my dad we hunted out of the back of the stage wagon. The clubhouse is a 10 by 20 wood shack with no power. The heat and light is furnished by some old windows that he picked up somewhere and put it in his shack. And there's a pot belly wood stove in the corner, wooden floor, and then there's a matching outhouse. So when we go hunt there, I usually bring along wine and food to eat. Yeah. And one of the best parts of that day with Doc is after we come in from the hunt and they're processing the birds, is to sit there sharing some wine with him out of a plastic Dixie cup. Right. And sharing whatever it is. One time I took black eyed pea and collard green stew that I had made. Nice. He was he was eating that stuff like he was eating foie gras and pheasant under glass. Wow. And he starts telling stories. I mean the guy's seventy three years old. He's been bird hunting longer than I've been alive. Right. And he starts telling stories about stuff that I would never get to hear in any other situation. Right. And it's just absolutely, it, it kind of makes, you know, it goes along with that whole day out in the field, the anticipation of going out and getting your gear together and going through it and making sure your guns are functioning personally, properly and checking the weather and making sure you got your, your gear set up for the what you're going to experience. And then, getting there and having breakfast and then getting teamed up with your group and going out and watching the guide and the dog work together. And, yeah. you know, when the bird flushes and in those those stolen moments when nobody's paying attention and all of a sudden you look and this beautiful vista opens up in front of you that you would have never seen if you hadn't been out there that day. Right. And then to come in at the end of it and have a glass of Armagnac or a glass of great red wine with people that have been doing the same thing in Norway or <clears throat> all the crazy stuff that Joe has done, you know, driven turkey. Whoever heard of driven turkeys? <laughs> yeah. Oh, look, he told me about the driven turkeys. I, I'm, I'm going to get him to talk about oh, that, too. Crazy. That is crazy. Right. I've never heard of a driven turkey before. Man, when you messed around and told me about Mr. Anderson and that that man said something about a driven turkey, I was like, what? And the thing to remember about him is he is an incredibly highly decorated Vietnam veteran. Mm-hmm. That service country, you know, White House, well, the, the, the whole package is just 
phenomenal. And then to to get a call and be you know standing out in a sorghum patch next to the guy, <clears throat> strategizing on how we're going to work this patch right. around, uh, is just I can't I can't even put words to it. And, and he looks like me. Right. Right. He looks like me. I mean, that's that's, that's the biggest priceless. thing about that's it, right? Priceless. That's priceless. Yeah. That's that's the biggest part about it. I mean, and it has nothing to do with not wanting to hunt with anybody from any different races, but it makes you feel so much better when you have a very proficient hunter that looks like you. Yeah. Point blank period. You can't get around it. You still there, there? Yeah, I'm here. Can you hear me? Hello. Can you hear me? Yeah. Okay, my bad. Sorry about that. I uh, my connection. So yeah, that's that. That just uh, it, yeah. You're absolutely right. That's taken nothing away from any of the other people that I hunt with. Right. The other people that I hunt with, which is a relatively small circle, because I'm not getting killed to get a bird. Right. Every every game bird you can shoot with a shotgun, you can order online and have it shipped to your front door. Exactly. So I ain't getting killed. So my hunting circle is very small. Yep. I'm not taking away nothing from any of those other guys. We go out, we have a great time as well. We, we create memories as well. But there's just something about the fact that there's this man standing here that has accomplished so much and been so many places. And is, you know, that he, he's really kind of sandbagging you. That driven grouse shoot he was invited to in the UK, that was a real earl or baron or somebody that owned a damn castle right it's like a duke i think they have dukes out there yeah this ain't some guy off the street that invited him to go hunt a patch of woods this is a a, this is an english he was a lord that's what it was he was an english lord and he met him down at riverview plantation hunting quail wow and that's how he got invited to go to the UK shoot driven grunts and 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 look most humble even on the podcast most humble dude Man, you can't beat that, man. And and but when you have experiences like that, and there's so much that we didn't there. I trust me, y'all. You saw the interview questions. There's stuff that yeah. we didn't even touch on with him. I'm not going to because we're gonna get him back on. Get him back. Right. Would, it would be a treat for your listeners. Right. It there was stuff that we didn't even touch on about this man. But you know, Daryl. First of all, let me apologize for saying Daryl and Mr. James. Man, I got good home training. My parents didn't teach. My parents actually taught me to call my elders by their last name. And I'm I'm trying to be an adult nowadays. You have nothing to apologize. So if if I flip back and forth, Daryl is my dad's name. And and I was taught to call you by Mr. James. Man, well, I, I, I wanted you to know, I mean, this has been a pleasure. And, and I also do, I mean, I do want to get you back on because the conversation is not done. You, sir, are a, a an influencer. You're a role model. Um, you know, I personally look up to you. And it, it, it's folks like me, man. I'm, I'm 28 years old. I'm trying to continue the legacy of, of what you guys have already grown up with and what you guys have experienced with, you know, I didn't, I didn't grow up hunting though. Somewhere in my family, if I, if we got a a hundred year old 410 shotgun, I can imagine that was, that was used for something. 
Yeah, it wasn't a it was not a, a centerpiece for a conversation. It was a tool. Exactly. Exactly. It's like a hammer. It had a purpose. It had a purpose. Now the thing kicked worse than uh you know any of my other guns, but oh, yeah, don't let them don't let those subgates guns fool you. Don't oh my god. Guns, you know you hold them. Oh. You know, I always tell people when somebody shows up to either shoot sporting plays or a bird hunt with a four ten, he's either a fool or you got an assassin on your hands. Right. Four tens uh, are they can be incredibly beautiful little guns, but you better know what you're doing when you're shooting them. Right. They're not as forgiving as a 12 gauge with an ounce and a half load in it and a two and three quarter inch shell and and, you know skeet or improved cylinder choke. Mm -hmm. Uh, So when you, you I always tell guys, don't if if you're the kind of people that's going to challenge people, don't ever challenge a man carrying a fort. You're going to look like a fool. Right. Look, I I'm gonna tell you that little single single barrel short barrel 410 that I have. The gun that I go out to kill squirrels with, and in Georgia, we might not have the biggest deer. I don't really deer hunt, but I know we're not really known for our deer. But we got some fat squirrels down here. I will say that. The gun that I use to go shoot a squirrel is not my 20-gauge Beretta. It ain't my 12-gauge TriStar. It is my little 410 XL single-shot shotgun. That thing, I might as well have thrown a brick at that squirrel. (laughs) I mean, when I tell you, I I have shot a squirrel with a 16 gauge shotgun, and that thing ran off. And and unfortunately, I hate to say it, but I was, I don't mind saying it. I never recovered that squirrel. I know I hit it. It fell, ran off, and I didn't bring my dog out that day. That's probably my my cubby confession for tonight. But when I tell you, I bring. I wish I had that 410. That squirrel would have been dead on the ground soon as I got it. I mean, man, I, I I feel every time I shoot that 410, I probably developed my flinch off a shotgun because oh, of that gun. <laughs> now, my 20 gauge, oh, I will wear your butt out all day. I'll shoot that thing from sunup to sundown. But that 410, I'm sorry. And it's like a fixed full choke, too. Yep. And it, it doesn't even have a bead on the front of it. That's why it's Right, right. I mean, that thing there, it don't it there's not a bead on the front end. And what's crazy is I think my granddaddy tried me, so how I even got the gun, I grew up seeing you know, I told you my granddad taught us how to shot and shoot and stuff like that. Well, I grew up seeing that little bitty gun in the corner of uh of my granddad's office. And 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 I would always ask. I was for years. I would ask Granddaddy, "What is that? What is that?" And my granddad is not a a shooter or a hunter. He worked for the for the uh, postal the at uh, the post office. He was a postal inspector. So what he knew about guns was what he used day to day, right? Okay. So that little four ten. When my great grandma, his mom, when she passed away, he found it in her closet. And he was like, well, I just kept it because I knew it belonged to my stepdad. I remember have, you know, him having it. And he was just kind of like, 
you know, I just kept it. Well, when I picked it up, it was rattling on the inside. And at the time, I didn't really know a whole lot about guns, but I knew this gun don't work. When I pull the trigger, it don't go bang. So mm -hmm. I said, granddaddy, can I have this gun? And he was like, well, it was my 25th birthday, matter of fact, which was a monumental year. I said, granddaddy, can I have this gun? And he was like, well, uh, if you go get it fixed, you can have it. And you know how, how, how old folk do. They get to talking that trash, don't think you're gonna do it, and then you mess around and do it, and they and, and they will live up right. to their word. And right. so I took that gun home, and after about two weeks, I had found me a gunsmith and literally repaired the insides of the gun. The gunsmith told me, Hey, look, I'm glad you brought this thing to me. It probably ain't worth a whole lot, but sentimental value. But he was like, the 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 insides of it are totally corroded. They are gone. Okay. And I messed around and shot that gun in front of my granddaddy. And he was like, you know what? I didn't even think you were going to get it fixed. Mary, you know, happy birthday. That's your gun. So that was actually, I inherited a almost hundred year old gun as my first like long arm shotgun. And I didn't have nothing else to shoot. 410 loads. I learned how to shoot it. It didn't have a barrel, it didn't, but guess what? And I learned how to shoot it on squirrels because we ain't got no quail flying around here uh, in the city. <laughs> I had me old crazy hound dog that I don't have me have anymore. I didn't know nothing about hunting over dogs, but what I did know is, and 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 you, the stigma was that you you want a hunting dog, you went and got a hound. Well, you know, I always get excited when people talk about rabbit hunting and squirrel hunting and stuff because. At a point, I had a walker hound, and I kind of have a soft spot for hound dogs because I still want, at some point in time, one day, I'm going to get me another hound dog. I don't know whether it's going to be a walker or a blue tick, but it's going to be one of the two. But that little hound dog, as terrible as he was, he wouldn't tree for long. He wouldn't bay for long, but he would tree and bay long enough for me to get a squirrel up in the tree, and I shot that thing on out. Yeah, he, he was efficient at his job. As his job, he was still he was still terrible. But I mean, that's how you learn. Yep. You know, and and so I I just appreciate the very real conversation that we had, Mister James. And you know, I want to get you on more because we're as much as you guys have told us and, and told me, and as much as we done laughed on the phone for we've been on the phone for two and a half hours. I think last time we were on for about three. Uh, we got more to talk about. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And you know what? Uh, it's, been, it's been a pleasure. I love, uh, it's, it's a, I love talking about, you know, I don't, I'm not a big sports guy. You know, I've mm -hmm. worn eyeglasses since I was four years old, so I didn't really, uh, you know, when I was coming up, eyeglass lenses were still made out of glass, and nobody right. wanted to be responsible for your glasses getting broken. They were right. very expensive. And <clears throat> so I didn't, Play a lot of you know team sports, but the, the things that I enjoyed doing were you know <clears throat> things where wearing eyeglasses wasn't a handicap, and one of them just happened to be shooting. I enjoyed nothing better than talking about uh, shotguns and shooting and hunting. And one of my favorite things to do is as I'm dropping a bird on the end of my barrel, I'm automatically thinking, How am I going to prepare this bird when yep. I get home? Yep, yep, that's the best part of because when the bird is dead, it's dead. I'm very proud of the fact that I can drop it, bring it home, and prepare 
feel that's worthy of a bottle of very expensive French champagne yep. or, uh, you know, a, a good beer. And that when we get done with dinner, I look over and my wife's plate is empty. Right. And it might be a couple little pelly. I always have to remind her, chew stuff. I, I, this was taken by the gun. This didn't come out of a cold box in a exactly. you know, grocery store. Too soft. There too, still might be some pellets in there. Exactly. <laughs> Look, we want to get them out, but it, you know, it, it sometimes there's one or two left in there. You don't always get them. And I don't. I've literally, and 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 to any of my listeners, guys, that chew soft thing, we've been laughing, but please, like, chew soft, chew soft for real. Like that's a real that's thing. Oh man. Chew salt. Chew even softer. Yep. Lead you can crush. Right. That non-tox stuff will split a tooth in a heartbeat. And and I I have you talking about somebody I've I've broken a chip the tooth before. I bit down on some shot one time and man, that is I didn't chip it, but I I the at the rate that I was biting down, I knew that had I bit literally any a little bit harder, I probably would have cracked it. And that's that's not to say don't hunt, you know, birds, you know, wild birds, because that's the way that I prefer to, to bring in my meat. It's healthier. Um, but it's just a matter of knowing, you know, what it is that you're getting into. Like you said, it, 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 it wasn't it wasn't purchased in a store. Nope. It wasn't, wasn't processed in a slaughterhouse. Right. You, you knocked it out of the air with thousands of tiny little pellets. Some right. May remain within. Right, right, and it you got to watch out. So I mean it, that this podcast, Daryl, like this is how I envisioned conducting my podcast, and and I've been doing it for I didn't even have a year anniversary. I guess I had forgotten it because I'd be so excited about recording. But this this episode here was how I envisioned getting on the line with folks and just having a good time, man. I hope my listeners are learning, um, but I hope that I spoke to you guys and and represented you guys in, in a way that you guys see fit. And I hope that, you know, I'm continuing to engage in the R3 initiative and, and really as far as that recruitment aspect of it, you know, more people need to be a part of this and more people, I'm going to say it, more people need to get a dog, get a gun dog and go out there and shoot some birds, man. I, I, I'm not a big, I'm not going to say a big fan of, but I don't really hunt a lot of big game like deer and stuff. I've tried a couple times, but that's just not really I, my thing. I don't either. And when I want venison, I either order it from several sources I have or I trade bird meat. Right. Medicine from the guys I know that are deer hunters. Right. Or big game hunters. Right. Um, that's just that's just not not something that I grew up doing. There were there were some uh, African American males that my father knew that were deer hunters, and that's how I got introduced to venison. But um, waterfowl and, and upland birds are my thing, and uh, and and we. We eat wild game quite a bit. I mean, I you know you could probably have a podcast on everything that I've cooked that didn't come out of a grocery store. So right, um, I, I enjoy all of it, but uh, it, it is is something about being able to provide for yourself that you know uh, I, I've been on those European hunts where 
people have walked off and left the birds. And you know what? If I'm not if I'm not going to take it, I'm not going to shoot. I might as well just shoot sporting plays. Right. That's a waste. Right. I'm. I don't believe in killing anything. I mean, and I. That's why I'm. I'm right there with you, man. I mean, to kind of yeah, conclude. Yeah, going in my pot. You know, I'm not just shooting you for just for a, some a distraction for a couple hours during the day. I'm, right. I'm out here. Sit, I'm serious. I'm getting some meat. Well, I'm not. I'm exactly. I'm not shooting. I don't shoot for trophy either. I. I just yeah. don't. I'm. To me, no bird is is a trophy. No animal to me is a trophy. I'm not going to go out and shoot a lion because it doesn't have anything to do with me. I'm not going to go shoot a bear because it has nothing to do with me. And I honestly have the belief that, uh, and, and I'll kind of wrap up on this, but I have the belief that, you know, humans, we kind of need a check and balance. You know, we're not the only predators and I don't go shoot. I just have a respect. I don't go shoot other predators. I just don't, you know, my, me and my buddy, Richard, uh, mom power, I mentioned him earlier we were talking about that and as a new hunter it seemed really cool to go out and shoot all these various types of game but dude i really believe that quail as helpless as they are i just think that that was nature's way of saying hey here eat something you know it's unfortunate for them as helpless as they are and i respect the bird and i respect life but, dude, some things are set up in nature to be exactly what they seem like. Well, you, you know what? Uh, they're not as some because, you know what? You never get them all. Even when you go to a set-out pheasant hunt, You're right. some of them get away. You're right. Some of, them, some of them get away. Even though you've got that, you know, that weapon in your hand, that, that uh, tool that is intended for them. Some of them do get away. I just, right. I, I just personally would not derive any enjoyment out of you know, I, I, I read about guys that, you know, that talk about how beautiful an elephant is, and then the next thing, blam, they slam a 500 win into it, and they're standing there posing with the picture. I would get no enjoyment out of that whatsoever. Right. Yeah, and it, that, that's not, you know, if it's, that, and that's just my personal thing. You know, um, you know bird, yeah, I can, I can take that down, I can put it in the freezer, and I can get it out and make a, a pot of duck gumbo or... Uh, uh, Ballantine or pheasant, but um, you know what you're gonna do with a Cape Rhino? Exactly. Nothing. Nothing, but Nothing say but you extinguish the, the species. Exactly. Not you're not gonna do anything but continue, like you said, continue with extinction and brag to your friends. Hey, I shot a Cape Rhino. Well, that conversation is cool for what five, ten minutes. Yeah, because there's one of those clubs here in Michigan, up near, uh, up in the upper lower peninsula where <clears throat> for if you got the money they'll fly in any kind of mammal uh, hoofed or uh, whatever four-legged mammal for, for you to hunt in a fence stand i don't know how many acres it is but they'll though you can you can pay to get that at places yeah so you don't even have to go to africa to do it it's not really hunting i mean it's it's pinned in in a in a in an area that you know that's some people enjoy that it's just not something that i do so right um it's been a, a lot of fun uh with you on the phone and yeah you represent it all right because you asked me again and i definitely said the yeah so well you know, you, nowadays everything's a survey you go get your oil change they send you a survey you go grocery shopping they want you to fill out the survey yeah. Tell them how they're doing. I always tell people, you know what? You will know how I'm doing because I'll come back. 
Exactly. When I stop coming back after we've had a conversation about something, then you'll know. I don't need to fill you a little survey out. Yep. So, yeah, you know you represent it because you call me again, girl, and I, I would gladly do another podcast with you. And I can't wait to get out in the field with you. And the same goes if you make it up here to Michigan. I'm sure that uh, Joe and I would love to get you out and uh, get you hunting in some of the places we got around here. Well, Mr. James, it, it, it's not an if, okay? I I want to meet you guys. Coming up to Michigan is a guarantee. Um, it may not, it obviously may not be this season because it's very early. But look, what I'm going to do, because you got a friend now. <laughs> and now, now you get a chance to get all of my crazy text messages about upland hunting and everything that I'm thinking about. I'm going to make it a point to get up there to meet you guys. Um, and, and you know, if and when, I know y'all will come, y'all hunters like I am, when y'all come down here, it ain't nothing but a word. You got some, you got, it come to Douglasville, you got somewhere to stay. I'll get the birds out. And if, and Lord knows if I don't put you on not now wild bird, I'm going to go out and I will get pen birds for you. <laughs> so you can shoot some. But... I, I just I have to pay it forward to you and Joe because, you know, dude, I wouldn't be able to do what it is that I'm doing if I wasn't able to talk to gentlemen like you. And, 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 and I say like you and like Joe, because you guys look like I do. It's not about division or inclusion or, or non-inclusion or anything. But sometimes it's good to talk to people that look like you and have the experience you know, that you need. And even more importantly, man, outside of that, because we got on that pretty heavy, but outside of that, man, it's just good to have a common interest in upland birds, wing shooting of whatever kind, whether it be waterfowl or, or upland birds and the bird dogs, man, that's why we're here. Yep. You know, that's why we're here. And, and I have a platform that has allowed me to really get a chance to meet you guys. So, Daryl, thank you so much for, for getting oh, on welcome. with me. Thank you for the invitation to be involved on your, and, and, and be on your podcast. I really, really enjoy myself. It's, it's the first time, so uh, I, I'm no longer a podcast version. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I look forward to catching up again soon. Yes, sir. Thank you so much. All right, guys. Well, that is the end of the Gun Dog Notebook. And I, I, I'm I, not going to say I hope you enjoyed the episode. I know you enjoyed the episode because if you didn't get anything out of these two guys, I'll, you just listened for a whole two hours and 40-something minutes and, and for nothing. My thing is, you know, Daryl and Joe are our significant representatives in this particular industry because they share the same passion as we all do. If you're likely listening to this podcast, you have a passion for the birds. You have a passion for the dogs. You have a passion for our three. You have a passion for everything that is positive about upland bird hunting. So with that being said, guys, that is the end of the gun dog notebook episode with uh, Mr. Daryl James and Mr. Joe Anderson. We'll get these guys back on later. All right, guys, y'all have a great uh, evening, night, or morning whenever you're listening to it, and I'm looking forward to posting another one again. Thanks. All right, guys. I uh, I hope you guys enjoyed that particular episode with uh, Daryl James and Joe Anderson. 
you know, what I didn't get to in that particular episode was uh, my personal coven confession. So I wanted to give that to y'all before uh, before we get on up out of here. So I think it it might have been two or three, but number, you know, one of them was the fact that I was just kind of impressed with myself that you know looking back on it. I could articulate my standards, you know, for what I'm trying to get my dog to do as a hunter. And and that's a pretty significant place for me personally, because when you talk about starting with the end in mind, uh, that's definitely a, a huge milestone, you know, especially in the short amount of time that I've been doing it now. Uh, Outside of that, I definitely want to acknowledge the fact that myself and my dog are each other's MVP when we get out there and we're hunting. It, you know, I've noticed and my wife has noticed and anybody else that may go out there, we have our own personal, you know, little hunting groove and hunting style and whatever, for whatever reason, it works. So... Those are my two Covey confessions at, at this point in time. Uh, guys, definitely, uh, I haven't mentioned this in a while, but if you could, go to patreon.com. I haven't brought this up in a long time, but it would be cool if you guys subscribe to my Patreon account. I'm going to start uh, posting some more exclusive content there, uh, deals, offers, uh, any kind of videos, things like that that uh my subscribers would have so if you go to patreon.com that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com and just uh search for the gun dog notebook you will find me and uh you know if you filling up to it donate to the to the cause um another thing guys of course i got some work on uh amazon and those are the shirts and and please look up the gun dog notebook um you'll know it's me when you see it i only use one uh logo and one image and and things like that just uh you know let me know what you think about some of my merchandise and all kinds of stuff like that you can also get it on the gun dog notebook.com uh and after that i i'm gonna keep asking you guys to check out Andrew Wayman's book, Idaho Rough Grouse Hunting, uh, Heartbeat of the Woods. I'm into reading, guys. Check it out. It's a very, very, very uh, nice piece of literature that I think you can get into, and it's not terribly long. Um, outside of that, you know, if you haven't, reach out to me and, and hit me up about the Pride Dog Food. Um, I would not give my dog that feed if I didn't think it really worked. It's not about a sponsorship. It was about quality. So uh, I've had a couple of people reach out to me, to me, and I thank you all. Um, so, anywho, um, you know, that's the end of the podcast. There will be more from them. And uh, I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. All right. Y'all have a great one, and uh, I'll catch you on the flip side.